Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. When it comes to naming prominent black inventors, most of us would probably come up with George Washington Carver. His contributions are numerous, but there are many, many names on the list of African-American inventors. Their names may not be widely known, but they are responsible for an impressive variety of inventions that touch our daily lives, from the ironing board to sophisticated computer technology and a whole lot in between. Some years ago, a Museum of Black Inventors was established here in St. Louis. It's now a traveling museum, and its founder, Loretta Ford, joins us in studio. Loretta, thanks for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. When and why did all of this get started in St. Louis? No, it's really interesting. Uh, I attended a book fair at St. Louis University in 1995, and I picked up a book, uh, Black Inventors of America, by Burt McKinley, Jr., and I start to thumb through the book, and I saw all of these amazing yeah. inventors that I had never learned about in elementary school. And just from there, I was determined to share it with as many people as I could. And these, and now the show is on the road, as they say, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But what, what exactly did you have in these in these buildings? What to, to uh, what, what was on display? Well, we had uh, first we have photographs, drawings, documentations <laughs> that make up our exhibit. But we also have hands-on replicas of inventions. And we had the biggest uh, invention that we have that we actually don't travel with is a wagon. And that wagon, uh, remember the old uh, stagecoach wagons in the Western movies? Only it's, from what I've seen in the movies, Loretta, right, thank it's, you. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a replica of that. Yeah. And that's one of the bigger. Then an antique uh, icebox, 
Uh, we don't travel with that because mm-hmm. it's extremely heavy. So those are some of the bigger items. But we also have all of our original items that are smaller that we do travel, like the baby carriage and, and some of the others that we do take on the road with us. You know, I, I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but why why do you think it is that so few of us know so so anything about th- these people who have made extraordinary contributions? You know, that is one of the reasons that I decided to to start the Museum of uh, Black Inventors because I attended predominantly African-American schools. And as part of my history lessons, I only learned about George Washington Carver uh, as we a black did. inventor. Right. Yeah. And his many contributions mm-hmm. for the peanut and things. And I was just amazed that I've gone through school and just didn't have this history. This history is, was just not a part of our history books and not taught. Well, we can talk about some of the specific inventors and inventions in just a moment. Sure. But w- one of the things that, that struck me in going over the list were the number of inventions that were created during the time of slavery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that must have been extraordinarily difficult to have an idea and then be able to present it and have people right. accept it. Well, you know, that that's always fascinating to me because at some point during slavery, um, in 1861, slaves were able to have their inventions recognized and able to get patents. Unfortunately, they could not make decisions about um, profits. They could not receive anything. But it was actually um, decided during a controversial uh, case where the actual slave master petitioned to the courts that if he owned the slave and that was his property, um, then the slave should not have a right to have a patent. And he actually won that case, and it stayed on the books there for maybe four or five years. And then it was overturned by um, the courts that slaves were free after 1865, and they were able to own their own patents. But prior to that, uh, they were not uh, profiting at all from not whatever all. Ever they came up with. It's, it's the slave masters would get the profits sure. and so forth. C- can, you, can you name a couple uh, of these inventions that fall into this category? Um, there was a guy by the name of Ned, and Ned and his uh, invention was, was related to the, the cotton gin, where he was able to make an apparatus that enabled the cotton gin to operate more efficiently. And, of course, cotton is a big moneymaker during slavery. And that was one of the ones that was really, really uh, uh, difficult for him to to achieve. He actually did go to court and against his master and lost. Yeah, that was probably not a very easy thing to do in in that day. Another that I have on the list here we can talk about for a moment, this was post-slavery. This was in 1887, and that's Sarah Boone and the ironing board. Now, you wouldn't think that this would, you know, would be a great revelation, the ironing board, but I guess it was. Well, Sarah Boone didn't invent the ironing board. She invented the uh, sleeve, the uh, ability for the ironing board to uh, adjust and add an apparatus that allowed you to iron sleeves. And as you know, men's shirts and and things like that were the bigger things that were ironed and, and in the um, early 1800s, but Sarah Boone actually created that. And it looks like a miniature ironing board when you see it in the museum, but it's actually uh, 
supposed to be used for ironing the sleeves only. And uh, she was one of the female inventors that uh, created that. Product. And there were a number of a number of women. We, we certainly have to give them their due. And as I go over the list, a number of them. Yeah. Um, Madam C.J. Walker uh, is well-known and resided here in St. Louis for a number of years and was the actually first African-American millionaire that uh, was an inventor. And she invented quite a few of the uh, women's facial uh, creams, products, hair care products, and so forth. And it was still a billion-dollar industry, and she was one of the founders of that. Hair care seems to have gotten a lot of of attention, and I suspect it still does. It does. It does. Who who are some of the other? I mean, there are a couple of them on the list. Well, you've also got some local inventors here. Uh, Lonnie Johnson uh, invented the Super Soaker water gun which is one of the fun adventures. <laughs> and you can go to any store now in the toys department and you can find a super soaker water gun. But he was also an engineer and very brilliant man who lived in uh, Illinois. And uh, he was really uh, creative in his uh, inventions as well. I know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the ground. tragic moments in civil rights history unfolds through the eyes of a 13-year-old girl in Linda Williams Jackson's new young adult novel. Jackson weaves together two stories, a historical one about the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till and a fictional one about Rose Lee Carter, a sharecropper's granddaughter struggling to make sense of life under Jim Crow laws in the 1950s. Linda Williams Jackson joins me now to talk about her new book, Midnight Without a Moon. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So why did you choose to center the story on the murder of Emmett Till? Why did you want to revisit that particular piece of history? Initially, I wanted to write a story about my own family's life in the Mississippi Delta. And some years ago, maybe about 10 or 11 years ago, my mother mentioned Emmett Till. And she was in her 70s and she had never mentioned Emmett Till Before And she actually didn't even say his name. I think there might have been something on the news about him. But for the first time, it just really struck me that, wow, this happened right here. And my mom was just a young woman then. And I wanted to explore for myself what it might have felt like for them to have this happen so close to home. So where do the two stories of Emmett Till and Rosalie Carter intersect in this book? Papa, who is uh, the grandfather of Rosalie Carter in the book, is a sharecropper in a fictional town called Stillwater, Mississippi, which is located in LaFleur County, which is also the location of Money, Mississippi, where Mose Wright, the great uncle of Emmett Till, was a tenant farmer. So to combine the two stories... I had Papa being an old friend of Mose Wright. So how does Rose react to the murder of a boy who's about her same age in a nearby community? How does she process that? She thinks about her own brother. So in in the killing of Emmett Till, her emotions 
run high because this could have been my brother or this could have been my best friend, Hallelujah Jenkins. Especially saying that Emmett Till is accused of whistling um, at a white woman and her best friend, Hallelujah Jenkins, is kind of girl crazy. So, you know, Rose is thinking this could have been Hallelujah. So you had mentioned that your mom had not ever talked about Emmett Till until way later in life. Did your family back then ever want to play a role in the civil rights movement? I doubt it. And that was another reason why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to explore why they weren't concerned. I I grew up knowing nothing about the NAACP or I've heard of Martin Luther King, didn't know a whole lot about him. And frankly, I was kind of embarrassed as an adult when I realized how little I knew about the civil rights movement. That's why I have Rose curious to learn about um, the NAACP and the upcoming civil rights movement because I didn't have that opportunity. And what's interesting is you have her surrounded by characters who don't want to rock the boat. For example, Ma Pearl. She doesn't want Rose to learn about the NAACP because she didn't want her relatives to be demanding for progress and change. What was Ma Pearl supposed to represent in this story? She's supposed to represent um, those people who fear the upcoming civil rights movement, those African-Americans who were like my family, who were afraid of things changing. I remember just probably about 15 years ago visiting my aunt um, in Memphis. There was my mom, my aunt, and another aunt, and they were talking about how much the white people loved Pop, who was my grandfather, um, how uh, they you know, didn't want him buried uh, at the church cemetery. They didn't think that was good enough. And it got me to thinking, why did they love him? Did they love him because he was such a good man? Or did they love him because he was so complacent and because he stayed in his place and because he didn't make trouble? I don't know the answer to that, but it was something that I wanted to explore as well. So my pearl would represent that group of people who were afraid to see change, because if change meant a fight, and they didn't want that fight. Part of the backdrop in this book is what's known as the Great Migration North. Many African Americans wanted to flee to the North in search of better jobs, a better life. Rose herself is tempted. She wants a brighter future. Explain how come Rose is so incredibly conflicted about this decision, whether to go up North or remain in Mississippi. She doesn't want to leave Papa. She doesn't want to leave her brother, Fred Lee, because he's already been abandoned enough. There's a sequel coming out um, in 2018, and you will find that there's some fear also in Rose of starting new. The sequel explains a little bit more why she chooses to stay. Well, I can't wait for the sequel. Thank you. Linda Williams-Jackson. Her book is called Midnight Without a Moon. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean 
We're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. I spoke to Taylor Farrell's mother a day after he was arrested for vandalizing the Tuckahoe Little League Park. She wants you to know her son is not a racist. He's my child, and I love him regardless. I'm not happy with his actions. Sarah Maxey is opening up about her son, Taylor Farrell. My child is one of those kids that would rather take the fall for everything and not snitch. Her son is in a lot of trouble. I'm upset with my son and what he did. Sorry. Vulgar, racist graffiti, smashed sinks, lights, and toilets were all found Thursday morning at the Tuckahoe Little League Park in Henrico County. Some words spray-painted are so hateful we can't even show on TV. Friday, police arrested Maxie's 18-year-old son at a hotel on Broad Street and charged him with three counts of intentionally damaging property. Can't understand for the life of me why he would have gone there or why he would have done that. She says he wasn't alone and wasn't the mastermind behind the plan, but instead with a man who bought the paint at Walmart. His quote-unquote friend um, supplied him with alcohol and took him out there. She says he confessed to the crime at the park where he helped win a championship last year, but not to writing the most awful language on those walls. He did admit to he broke the sink, he, he wrote oops, and he drew the pictures of genitalia, but he did not do the racist. None of that. He, his girlfriend is actually black. Maxie revealed her son has had a troubled upbringing, but says her son isn't a mean person that deserves all the hate on social media. One person said they should take a baseball bat to his hands and feet. It's pretty harsh. She says detectives told her they continue to investigate the others who may be involved, while her son remains in jail without bond. I expect my son to suffer the consequences of his own actions. Good news, the Little League Park is back open, but the bathrooms will stay closed until the necessary repairs are made. Stick with CBS 6 for the latest on this developing story. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big thigh, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon spade mulling yarn. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. For the past year or so, reports of racism at Saucon Valley High School started bubbling to the surface. Families say the verbal attacks got more and more aggressive. He had been going through some stuff for some years. One of the students actually threw a Confederate flag at him. Uh, it was other slurs. Al Rivers is the family friend of a 16-year-old black teenager at the school who's routinely harassed. The racism reached a boiling point in October when a 14-year-old white student posted a racist Snapchat video calling that black teen the N-word and saying he's on welfare. Nigga! Look at that. You know, he's on welfare. He probably can't even 
buy any chicken. That Snapchat video sparked a schoolyard fight. At first, only the black student was charged with assault, but now, months later, the district attorney is also filing charges against the white student for ethnic intimidation and cyber harassment. And harassment, you know, whether it's based on race or uh, otherwise, is a crime. The district attorney says this sends a message, especially to a group of white students at the school calling themselves the rednecks, responsible for harassing black kids for months. It sends a message that this kind of conduct is not going to be tolerated and hopefully it'll just break up the, uh, the loose organization of, of boys who feel that they want to be a part of such an organization. But some parents say the Saucon Valley District needs to do more to create an inclusive community. So a zero tolerance policy will help everybody up at the school and help all of them coexist in there. And that was Randy Gyllenhaal reporting. The district tells us they have created an inclusion committee to work toward making all students feel valued and supported. The DA also told us both students are facing a probation-like program in juvenile court. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the backseat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Cell phone video captures the moment a Wake County student was thrown to the ground by an officer. Tonight, that officer is on administrative leave. WRL's Candace Sweat spoke with the student and her mother tonight. Candace joins us now live outside the Roseville Police Department. Candace? The teen's mom says regardless of what happened before that nine-second clip that we uh, have been seeing all day long, she says she still believes the officer's actions were excessive. The police chief tonight said he's asking the State Bureau of Investigation to look into the incident. Jasmine Darwin says in the moment she hadn't fully grasped what had happened. Now, every time she sees the video... I feel... Every time I look at it, like, I... It's embarrassing. This tweet went viral after a student at Rollsville High School posted a nine-second clip of Darwin being slammed to the ground by a Rollsville police officer, later identified as Ruben De Los Santos. Darwin says she was trying to break up a fight between her sister and another student when she was grabbed from behind. I didn't even realize it happened. Like, I was in shock. Rollsville Police Chief Bobby Langston confirms the officer was responding to a fight. At a town meeting, Chief Langston released a statement and asked for patience from the public. No further information about this investigation will come out until it's complete. I have requested for the SBI to come in to give a third-party review. No matter what comes from the investigation, Darwin's mother, Desiree Harris, says the officer's actions were excessive. She tells us she had no clue about the video or what happened to her daughter until after she took home her oldest daughter because of the fight. When I'm looking at this video, I'm like, oh my God, this cannot be happening to my child. She wants someone held accountable. That's not how you handle a child. She's only 100 pounds. She, he could have killed her. 
And Chief Langston wouldn't really go into detail about the possibility of video before that nine seconds. Of course, a lot of people have questions about what happened leading up to what we've been seeing all day long. Uh, when asked about potential body camera footage, he says that he's not going to release any uh, additional information at this time. But we do know that the officer, De Los Santos, has been on the force for about five years. He's now placed on administrative leave. And about an hour ago, uh, we received a statement from Roseville High School principal. She says two years ago, our school district enacted a unified agreement with all local enforcement agencies to provide training and a clear understanding of the duties and responsibilities of SROs. As part of the investigation, the district and law enforcement are reviewing those standards. So again, still a lot of questions from the community as this investigation continues. Deborah, Candace went live in Roseville. Thank you, Candace. My name is Sabrina Johnson, and I'm here at the Race Relations Institute at Fisk University. Fisk University opened in Nashville after the Civil War to educate freed slaves. Its students have gone on to become stars of the Harlem Renaissance and leaders in the civil rights movement. But the school still grapples with the dilemma that's been there since its beginning, how to become financially sustainable. Emily Siner from member station WPLN has the story. Fisk is perhaps most widely known for its music. This is a recording of the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 1909, and its musical legacy is intertwined with money. Just five years after the school was founded in 1866, Congress stopped funding black colleges. Historian Revis Mitchell says money dried up. When the school reached the point of less than a dollar left in the treasury, and there was no hope. A student chorus was put together in the fall of 1871. That chorus of nine students set out on its first national tour. They would present themselves, some the children of slaves, a few enslaved themselves, and the world was astonished by these young people from this place called Fisk. The Jubilee Singers became legendary. They performed at the White House for President Grant. They traveled to England and sang for Queen Victoria. She instructed her court painter to create their portrait, which still hangs at Fisk today. And the tours worked. With the money the singers raised, Fisk bought the land it sat on and built the campus's first permanent building. It's still a point of pride even today. At Fisk events, speakers frequently invoke the original nine Jubilee singers, thanking them for their dedication to the school. But as their legacy lives on, so does the financial burden they had tried to relieve. Fisk nearly went bankrupt in the 1980s. Then, a decade ago, it set off a long legal battle when it tried to sell famous paintings donated by Georgia O'Keeffe. The school was later put on temporary probation for its finances. That's not to say it's always been shaky. Mary Beth Gassman at the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions actually wrote her dissertation on what she calls Fisk's golden years, the 1940s and 50s. And that's really the last time that Fisk had like real financial success and they were at the helm of HBCUs. To get back to that point, Gassman says Fisk needs a few things. It needs stable leadership. It's been cycling through presidents lately. 
It also needs to buckle down on fundraising, getting potential donors excited about the school today, not just its history. No one's going to give to Fisk merely because of the Jubilee Singers or Jubilee Hall. You know, they want to see what Fisk is doing now. That's one of the biggest challenges for Jens Fredriksson. He's in charge of fundraising. He says he wants to move the school away from its reputation of being strapped for cash. I think for a long time we were probably mired down in, in, a, in a few familiar narratives that, that, that sort of usurped all the press. Instead, Fredrickson wants to highlight academics. For example, Fisk is nationally ranked for its master's program in physics. He's also trying to increase alumni and private company donations. The Jubilee Singers still have a role in all this, 150 years later. They're seen as ambassadors for the university as they travel around the country to perform. But this time, the fortunes of the school no longer rest on their voices. For NPR News, I'm Emily Siner in Nashville. He from the ghetto. Niggas want to know what the ghetto is. Niggas don't know what the ghetto is. I know what the ghetto is. I live the ghetto. We live the ghetto every day. The mentality is the ghetto. Stay with my people. Make money with my people, man. Why y'all fighting me, man? Fight them, man. Be on my side, dog. Us together against them, we'll slay them. That's ghetto. Stay ghetto. Live ghetto. Be ghetto, man. For real. like uh, recently the New York Post reported on a restaurant in the meatpacking district that's currently being sued uh, for discriminating against black patrons that frequented the restaurant and the name of that restaurant is Bagatelle and it looks like it's a French French owned um, bistro style restaurant that specializes um, in serving brunch and it looks like there was a former employee that's a part of the suit that really gave up all the inside scoop on what they were doing in the restaurant and it looks like whenever a black customer came in that they would sit them in a section or a table called table 157 in the back of the restaurant and the staffers called it the ghetto station that's right they called it the ghetto station and they would force patrons to sit down and share two seats and they even had photos to prove it and then they would accidentally lose reservations for patrons that they did not want to serve at that restaurant so say, for instance, you are a black customer, you made a, a reservation there. When you came to the restaurant, you they simply just, for some reason, couldn't find it. Or they, it would get lost intentionally. And they had many code words and acronyms that they used, such as DNA, that they would put on the bills of customers um, that were black. And that meant do not accommodate. If they were considered an ugly customer, they were branded with B.O. And so it looks like, you know, not only were they discriminating against black customers, 
but and they were also discriminating against their employees and the French employees were getting treated better and there were some um, non-French employees that said they were being uh, sexually harassed and experiencing obscene behavior and the funny part you know about this article is that they said you know the everyday black person couldn't get in there but apparently celebrities the black celebrities could you know come in there um, they mentioned um, Serena Williams, Jamie Foxx, Jay-Z and Beyonce dining on its $280 seafood tower or its king crab ceviche so but it said when four African Americans without you know celebrity names showed up last summer they were led to a table with only three chairs so four people got a table with three chairs which means that two people were forced to share a seat and you know someone uh, that worked there that's a part of the lawsuit he told them we do have enough chairs for them not to be forced to to share seats he said we do have the chairs this shouldn't be happening four people in three chairs really and he was allegedly told we don't want them here in And um, so it looks like if you had money, if you were a big name, they didn't mind, you know, you coming in there if you were a Beyonce or a Jay-Z. Um, but if you were just an everyday, you know, non, I guess, non-celebrity individual, even though it looks like they're spending big bucks, $280 for a seafood tower with a lot of money for some food in a place where I have to share a seat with another person. And so, you know, we really do have to expose these kind of businesses because why do you want to go in there and spend $280 with someone that's putting DNA do not accommodate that's losing reservations that's making you share seats um, that's trying to make you uncomfortable so you don't come back you know we have to stop you know want to you know go to a restaurant that's seating you in the ghetto station you know I, I want to make sure you know uh, that we report on this and get that out there because we don't want to keep giving money to people that don't care about us they probably did all those things and did not mind sliding the credit card or taking the cash to pay for their food so we really have to stop you know going in these restaurants and these establishments that do not want us to be there that you know discriminate against customers and you know we really have to begin to uh, have our own restaurants and you know patronize our own businesses you know it's kind of funny you know you know we we want to go into these restaurants you know for the status you know we think it um it's cool it shows that we've arrived to go into these type of restaurants and eat a 280 dollar plate of food and you know give a certain look or appearance and we really have to stop doing that and we walk by our own you know businesses all the time and we go to these types of establishments and maybe just maybe if we would go into our own you know black owned businesses or you know other small businesses that do uh, support our communities just maybe if we would actually put our money into those businesses maybe they could you know reinvest back in their own business and you know make it 
you know, even, you know, better and upgrade their business. But a lot of times these small businesses are closing down because we're not investing in them. You know, we should feel appalled, you know, to go and invest in some some other, you know, establishment that doesn't want us there and spend $280 for a plate and won't go into another business that maybe is only charging you $25 for a plate and they can barely keep it together or whatever. And this business, you know, don't even want you to be in there. And so that's something that we have to really think about. Why do we feel like it's better to go in a restaurant like this as opposed to going and supporting one of our own restaurants in our own neighborhoods and not only investing in them, but we'd be investing in our communities. We'd be creating jobs in our communities. We'd be helping support a family. Um, we might even be able to help that particular business to expand. So much for integration. Don't know what I was thinking. I'm moving back to Southside. So much for integration. Don't know what I was thinking. I'm moving back to Southside. New at 6, a Winter Haven woman gets a shocking surprise when she walks to her car. Someone wrote the N-word and drew a naked woman on the hood of her car. And they used mustard to do it. Mustard. The vandalism has her worried that she might be targeted. Whoever did it apparently hit a number of neighbors as well. Fox 13's Ken Suarez takes a look at this very unusual crime spree. And I never used live at all. Cecilia Sanders is usually pretty quiet, but the other day she couldn't hold back. So she went on Facebook Live. I'm a black woman. This is serious. Someone had written the N-word and drew a naked woman on the hood of her car. And the culprit used, get this, mustard to do it. I got scared for the whole situation that my life was in danger, that somebody was watching me and everything. And out to get her. So you thought you were targeted? Yes. Because you're black? Yeah, I think so. It had the N-word on, on my hood, on the car, and I felt like that's what it was. Other people close to Avenue T Southeast were hit, too. A curse word written in mustard on this nearby mailbox. Mustard and jelly smeared on two cars at another home. The Polk Sheriff's Office is trying to get to the bottom of it. It's probably juveniles running around doing some sort of prank. School's been out for two weeks. Kids get into mischief sometimes. Neighbors like Tyrone James are taking the racial slur much more seriously. It's some type of prejudice or bigotry or something went on other than prank. We went past that stage. You might say, wow, that's vandalism. Actually, it's not. To be vandalism, there has to be damage. You can wash off mustard with just a little bit of water. Still, detectives say if they catch whoever is behind this, they'll be held accountable. It should be something that they always could do about something like that, always. They shouldn't let that slide. Whatever it takes, Sanders wants this distasteful condiment caper to be shelved for good. In Polk County, Ken Suarez, Fox 13 News. Well, the sheriff's office is taking the incident seriously. They are increasing patrols in the area. I had a dog growing up. Show you a picture of him. Black, white feet, white throat, little white tip on his tail. I love that dog. That dog knew when I was going to service. He knew when I got in trouble. He knew when I was phoning home. He'd come up, lay on the porch, and look at the phone. And it would and ring if it was from me. He'd bark like wild, make sure somebody answered the phone. You know what his name was? Nigger. Nigger!
And that was your dog? That's right. I love that dog. That, that wasn't no bad name. That's because he was black, shiny, pretty, muscular. Come on, nigger. So tonight, a community is rallying around a man after he got a rude awakening. Racial slurs spray-painted on his house and his SUV set on fire. Police are looking for the person responsible for this disturbing crime. And now there's an arson investigation underway in Highlands. Josh Marshall is live on San Jacinto Street with a look at how the community is responding. Josh? It may have only taken just one person to paint those racial slurs and light the car on fire, but it's taken dozens of near strangers to correct the problem, erasing those messages of hate and making this homeowner feel at home again. Scorched metal and melted plastic. My car was destroyed. Red spray paint demanding the African-American homeowner to leave. And thanks to the fire department, they helped get the... the racial slurs off the house. He didn't want us to use his name or show his face, only wanting to explain how he's feeling. I felt it in my gut. I felt bad, you know, that people would actually, in this day and time, still do stuff like this. Highland's neighbors, feeling the same way, stopped by extending friendship. This is not who we are, and this is not what we want uh, shown in our community at all. Who and why are the only questions left to answer. And I've been trying to figure that out myself. Was I targeted? Uh, you just don't want me here? Uh, you're trying to send a message or what? I, I don't know. The homeowner is a felon. His last offenses are gun and drug charges from 2014 and 15. There are some things that happened, you know, in the past. And the only thing people can do is try to change what they were in their past and try to do good. And that's what I've been trying to do. The homeowner says his past convictions don't have anything to do with the fire or messages painted on his property. To get closer to those answers of who and why, investigators are taking a closer look at surveillance video from nearby businesses. So far, no answers. Live in Highlands, Josh Marshall, KHOU 11 News. Excuse my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. To the Central African Republic, now and six French soldiers who are accused of sexual assaults against minors will not now face criminal charges in France, according to judicial sources. The accused were heard by an investigating judge who decided that there wasn't enough evidence to warrant a prosecution or any further investigation. The soldiers had served in the Central African Republic as part of a peace mission dispatched to the country after chaos broke out there following a coup in 2013. The lead sexual assaults are said to have happened between December 2013 and June 2014 at a camp for displaced people near the airport in the capital, Bongi. So how did the judge justify the decision? The BBC's Hugh Scofield is in Paris. We haven't seen the detail of, of his decision. It has been reported in the French news agency, but I think we can read between the lines that it's just been impossible for them to substantiate in their interviews out in Bongi, the substance of the allegations. Just to recap, this was an investigation launched two and a half years ago. Uh, it was then re- remained secret, but was made public when The Guardian in Britain newspaper reported it. After that, you know, the, the, the investigation was a f- fact of public knowledge, and it was uh, confirmed that, that on two occasions, the investigating magistrates went out to Bongi in uh, last year uh, and the year before, on two occasions, to speak to the 
children, because it is children or certainly people in their young teens who were at the centre of this, speak to them to try to, to firm up the allegations against the soldiers. In the end, it seems they were unable to do that. And as a result, it's been reported now, it's leaked really, that, that the investigation has terminated. And there is, there is technically a possibility that charges will be referred against these, these men uh, because there's still a period now in which the civil parties can file you know, demands for extra investigations. It seems pretty unlikely that that's going to happen now. Hugh Scofield in Paris. Well, for reaction, I spoke to the organization that initially revealed the allegations by leaking documents to the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom. Paula Donovan is the co-director of AIDS Free World and their Code Blue campaign, which seeks to end impunity for peacekeeper sexual abuse. I think it's reprehensible. It's ridiculous that uh, the French government wasn't able to find the perpetrators of these heinous crimes against children. But an investigating judge has basically decided that there's no evidence to warrant a prosecution or further investigation. Well, I think, Paul, what has to be considered is comparative attention that might have been given to this case if the children were French children in Paris rather than African children in Bangui. I mean, I read the reports that were uh, produced by the UN staff members who interrogated the children, and I find it absolutely impossible to believe that given the level of detail and the identifying features that the children disclosed to these uh, UN staff members, that the French could not possibly have found either the perpetrators immediately or eyewitnesses to these horrible events. So at least you think that given the evidence, this would have warranted a prosecution at least? Absolutely. Absolutely. There were identifying features that can't be uh, changed. Tattoos, uh, body piercings, uh, height, racial composition, that sort of thing. That, uh, and of course, there are not that many soldiers who were on duty in the capital of the Central African Republic on the dates that these children were violated. Now, the judge has made this ruling. Is this the end of the road as far as you're concerned? I certainly don't think it should be. I think that this case should be referred to the International Criminal Court. Now, your organization deals with these sorts of allegations regularly. How often do you see charges brought, let alone convictions? Almost never. In fact, in the time since the Code Blue campaign was launched in May of 2015, I don't know of more than maybe three cases in the Democratic Republic of the Congo where soldiers were indicted and brought to trial. They were brought to trial in the Democratic Republic of the Congo rather than in the country where the, where the alleged crimes were committed. But all in all, hundreds and hundreds of reports of sexual exploitation and abuse by uh, UN and, and French uh, peacekeeping personnel. Of all those hundreds, we have not seen any kind, anything that could even approach justice. Uh, the numbers of indictments are extraordinarily rare. And in a word, despite this, you still continue? What we're advocating for now is that a special court system be set up uh, that's independent of the United Nations Secretariat, because the Secretariat, as I've said, has uh, has been interfering rather than assisting in criminal matters over which it has absolutely no authority to intervene. So what we'd like to see is a special court mechanism set up that can 
deal with this issue quickly and uh, on site with international investigators who are unbiased, who are not connected with the countries involved. We'll start with the civilian peacekeeping personnel. And if that's um, successful, then the member states, the troop contributing countries may also wish to subscribe to this kind of court and simply deal with these cases as soon as they arise while the evidence is fresh and while the victims can be treated in a way that might help them to recover and rehabilitate. Paula Donovan of the Code Blue Campaign. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. The number of casualties in Chicago since last New Year's Day has surged to a level more in line with a war zone than one of America's great cities. More than 700 people were murdered, over 4,000 shot. That's more than Los Angeles and New York combined. Gangs, guns, and drugs have caused chaos in Chicago for years. But something new caught our attention. There has been a drop in the kind of police work that law enforcement says is critical to preventing crime. Usually stops and arrests go up when violence is rising. So we went to Chicago to look for an explanation. What we found was a police department on its heels as the city suffered its worst bloodshed in 18 years. In the six days we were in Chicago, 55 people were shot, 16 were killed. We were struck by just how routine it all felt. The dead and wounded were removed with grim efficiency, right down to the hazmat crews that cleaned away the blood. Murder seemed almost normal. And now we are the poster boy of violence in America. Michael Flager is pastor of St. Sabina Church on Chicago's south side. His congregation started summer weekends by praying for a low body count. I had three families, three different families call on one day asking to do the funeral of their child who was killed in the last week. I've never had that in 41 years here. Three families in one day. 59 gangs are at war over territory and drugs on Chicago's west and south sides. But the makeshift memorials we saw also marked places where people were killed in gang initiations or over petty insults. They pop stove back over for the This gang member was taunting a rival on his phone live on the internet when he was shot. Watch and you'll see the gunman. What's it like around here on a typical Saturday night these days? I've never seen there to be a combination of anger, distrust, and a feeling like communities have been abandoned. Shame on us that our children are afraid to go out of their house of being shot and killed. When is the tipping point that we all say, enough? But we were astonished by data we obtained from inside the police department. It revealed that as killings rose, police activity fell. In August of 2015, cops stopped and questioned 49,257 people. A year later, those stops dropped to 8,859, down 80%. At the same time, arrests were off by a third, from just over 10,000 to 6,900. 
You talk to cops every day. We do. What's the morale? Lowest it's ever been. Brian Warner is a former Chicago cop. He was shot in 2011. Now, Warner counsels officers suffering from extreme stress. He explained what a dozen beat cops told us off camera. They had stepped back. You have a 911 call, you go to your 911 call. But if you want an aggressive patrol, when you're out looking for people, breaking the law, that's not happening as much as it was. But you say they're not being as proactive. No, they're, they're not. And how could you ask them to be, and why would you expect them to be? Because it's their job. <laughs> it's, they, it's, they, it's, they signed on to right. do that. It's my job to go to work and, and listen to your 911 calls and respond to my 911. That's, that's the basic ability of my job. So if you want me to do the basics, that's what I'm doing now. The police activity is horrific, honestly. And, it, and it's, it's not an excuse that could be made in my book. We showed the stop and arrest data that we got to Gary McCarthy. He was superintendent of the Chicago Police Department until just a year ago. When you have activity falling off the way it is and crime skyrocketing, that's a huge problem. Some people looking at the Chicago Police Department have said it's in crisis. Crisis is a good word. When, when people are dying, yes, there's crisis. No two ways about it. This crisis inside the police department began in 2014 with the shooting of Laquan McDonald. He was 17 years old. Police reported McDonald was breaking into vehicles and ignored their commands when they said he lunged at one of them with a knife. But dashboard video appears to show McDonald was moving away when he was shot 16 times by a white officer. When did you first see the video? I saw the video. I believe it was the day after. What would you think? I said that there's a problem uh, and the officer is going to be accountable for explaining his actions. Gary McCarthy immediately gave the case to the independent city agency that reviews shootings. But City Hall refused to make the video public, even after it paid McDonald's family a $5 million settlement. When a judge finally ordered the video released a year later, it sparked outrage. Protesters accused the city of a cover-up to protect Mayor Rahm Emanuel's re-election. The mayor denied it, but promised sweeping changes. His first move was to fire Gary McCarthy. The public trust in the leadership of the department has been shaken. Do you think you were made a scapegoat? I don't think it helped the situation. And I think it's a contributory factor to where we are today in Chicago. And if, it's, if you want to call it scapegoat, that's fine. The cop who killed Laquan McDonald is awaiting trial for murder. And the U.S. Justice Department is investigating the Chicago PD. We wanted to talk to Mayor Emanuel, but he declined. Within six weeks of the shooting scandal, investigative stops fell by nearly 35,000. That's when the violence began to surge. How can a police officer who has taken a vow to protect and serve defend stepping back from taking proactive action? How can you Officers actually... are under attack. That's how they feel, right? That's how they feel in this environment. And they're not going to put themselves and their families in jeopardy. Frustration among cops deepened with a new order to be more selective about who they stopped and write a two-page detailed report for everyone. 
It was the result of a threat by the American Civil Liberties Union to sue the department for racial profiling. It doesn't seem that filling out a two-page report is that onerous. Oh, sure it is. It, it is. could take you up to 45 minutes. And one of the things in policing that we've been trying to do is knock back the amount of time that officers spend doing paperwork and get them out doing more proactive things to prevent crime. There are reasons for the scrutiny. Since 2004, the city has paid out more than a half billion dollars in settlements for police misconduct. A task force appointed by the mayor found evidence of racial bias and reported that nearly 90% of police shootings involved minorities. The Chicago Police Department is not racist, but I do know and do believe that there are racist police officers in the Chicago Police Department. Richard Wooten broke ranks and talked to the mayor's task force about what he saw during his 23 years as a Chicago cop. They put me in a car with this guy, and my first couple of stops I saw this guy stop a black guy, you know, several black guys on the street, and they literally almost got strip searched right in the middle of the street. And I'm looking like, wow, is this the way it's supposed to be done? You were called a traitor for speaking out. Oh, yes. At my retirement party, when I got up to speak, a group of white boys in the back, they booed me, called me traitor, snitch. Was the booing the extent of it? No. I went into the uh, restroom, and I was confronted by a couple of the guys in the restroom about, you know, my position and how could I do that after 20-some years of service. But then as I'm looking into the urinal, <laughs> I see my picture that they've torn out the program in each urinal. They put your picture... My picture inside in the, the urinals. But I wasn't angry, Bill. You weren't angry. I was not angry because that just told me how dysfunctional we have, of, of officers we have on the police department. The turmoil was not lost on gang members who record their attempts to lure officers into a confrontation. Say hi. This video was posted online by someone claiming to be connected to the Simon City Royal Street Gang. No questions, gentlemen, no questions. The impact was evident during this October arrest. Officer Veronica Murillo says it was the fear of becoming the next viral video that kept her from pulling her gun as she struggled with this suspect. He knocked her down and bashed her head into the pavement. She suffered neurological damage that has endangered her career. The noncompliance with the law is becoming legitimized. And the police are on their heels. They're on their heels for a number of reasons. How dangerous is that? We see the results, don't we? We're reaching a state of lawlessness, right? That's what's happening. Dozens of innocent people have paid the price. I pray every night and every day my, that no hurt, harm, or danger will come to my children. Flora White's prayers went unanswered. She showed us the parking lot where her 26-year-old son, Jonathan, was murdered in July. He played basketball in college and in Europe. He wasn't out here selling drugs. He wasn't out here gangbanging. He wasn't doing any of that. And yet he ended up dead. Exactly. Jonathan was on his way to practice when he stopped to talk to friends. Investigators say he was shot by a gang member who was angry they were on his turf. By our count, there have been about a dozen shootings just this August just in the area surrounding the spot where Jonathan was killed. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, stops 
by police in the neighborhood have dropped by almost 80%. What do you think of that? What do I think of that? I think it's a joke of accountability in politics. We went looking for accountability from Chicago's new police superintendent, Eddie Johnson. And this is where the uh, incident just happened. It's right here. Yep. He worked his way up over a 28-year career. If I found someone that intentionally uh, was not doing his job, then I would discipline him. This is a tough job. It's a dangerous job, but it's also a noble job. Johnson insisted the main reasons for the drop in police activity were stricter standards for stops and the forms triggered by the ACLU. But he admitted his cops have become more careful. They are cautious um, about doing their jobs. You're calling it caution. They're telling us that it's backing down. You know, I still go out in the field and I talk to officers too, and, and they take offense to... Uh, people referring to them as backing down or, or not doing their job. Well, the, the one number that I think is not in dispute is the homicide rate has gone, not just the rate, the number of homicides have, have skyrocketed. So the number of stops and arrests are going down dramatically, and the number of people being shot and killed are going up dramatically. There's got to be a correlation. Well, you know, there, there may be some, you know, but again, I, I'd have to go back to it's not what the police officers are not doing. It's more about what these, what the criminal offenders are doing. But don't the police play a role? Yeah, we play a role in terms of, of mitigating it and, you know, arresting. But it's not, it's not being mitigated. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. What we can't measure is the crime that we stop. Johnson is hiring and promoting a thousand cops in an attempt to get a handle on the violence. But it'll take a year under his plan to get reinforcements to where Flora White lost her son, Jonathan. What good is it going to do? You don't think more police on the street will make a difference? I'm going to hire more people to do a job that's not being done. What sense do that make? Chicago. Chicago. Racism is wrong in any shape, form. There are a lot of black people who are racist, too. This sounds dangerously like reverse discrimination to me. White people yelling reverse racism. Alleged kidnapping and torture stream live on Facebook. A white teenager with special needs tied up and beaten as a group of young African-Americans shouting anti-white slurs and calling out Donald Trump. Tough stuff to watch. Good morning, everybody. That is where we start as we work through the facts of this story as we get them. I'm Bill Hemmer, and welcome here to America's Newsroom. Hi, Bill. Good morning, everybody. I'm Martha McCallum. So this shocking story breaking in Chicago, and we want to warn you, this video is very disturbing to watch. It shows an 18-year-old victim who was tied and gagged. The suspects put a knife to his throat at different points in this video. They make him drink from the toilet. They shout expletives against white people and against the president-elect. This torture goes on for more than 30 minutes. Listen. Donald Trump. White people, boy. Film. Goof. Yeah. My sister said this not fun, y'all. 
from Chicago, police have arrested four so far. Matt Finn is live there in the Windy City to begin our coverage. Let's talk about charges, Matt. When will they be filed? Bill, police tell us those four attackers are in custody right now and the charges are expected to be filed later today. Police tell us they think this mentally challenged teen is from the suburbs and was driven into the city in a stolen van. Police say he was held captive for up to 48 hours and then released. He was found wandering in the cold. Here's how the Chicago police superintendent responded to all this. It's sickening. You know, it makes you wonder what would make individuals treat somebody like that. Bill, this morning, a big question is whether this rises to the level of a hate crime. If it does, these attackers face up to 30 years in prison. Certainly, Bill. it's catching fire online and across the country. Uh, what are people saying, Matt? Yeah, major responses online. First, people seem to be outraged that there are people online making jokes about this video, perhaps even cheering on the attackers. And there is also outrage over a Chicago uh, detective who said this might amount to nothing more than just a childhood prank. Take a listen to that. Kids make stupid decisions. I shouldn't call them kids. They're legally adults, but they're young adults and they make stupid decisions. Uh, that police official obviously taking a lot of heat. Many people also tying this to the Black Lives Matter movement, giving its own hashtag BLM kidnapping. One Twitter user writing, BLM is being linked with BL, uh, BLM kidnapping because so many people have experienced violence, vandalism, and racist hatred at the hands of BLM. In response to these types of tweets, the Black Lives Matter Chicago Twitter account wrote back saying, some people are disgusting. You're making jokes. What happened to the teenager is terrible and tragic. However, it has nothing to do with the BLM. Bill, we are following this story. We will be attending the press conference later today where we might learn what these four attackers will be charged with. More to Bill. come on that than thanks. Matt Finn leading our coverage there in Chicago. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control. A way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Last hour, Dylan Roof's journals from jail were read during the sentencing phase of his federal death penalty trial. The convicted killer murdered nine people inside Mother Emanuel AME Church in 2015. Raphael James live at the federal courthouse in downtown Charleston. Raphael, there were some concerns today about how this part of the trial is going. 
Yes, that's right, Debbie. Perhaps most of the explosive action came from the defense side of the courtroom today. Let's see if I can set a picture for you. Imagine yourself in an operating room. You've got one of the world-class surgeons right there, and you decide to perform your own surgery. Well, that is similar to the case we have here. David Bruck, who is the standby counsel for Dylan Roof, is well-respected in uh, capital defense cases in this country, and he is the standby by counsel and Dylan Roof, it seems, is not following his lead. He's not objecting when Bruck says he should object. He's not filing motions when Bruck says he should file motions. In fact, Bruck says he suggested Roof file a mistrial motion, and we later learned uh, Dylan Roof chose not to do so. He is acting as his own attorney. Meanwhile, Bruck says today in court that Roof is unqualified and he petitioned the judge again to reinstate him as the lead counsel on this case so that the integrity of the case would not suffer any more than it already has due process. The judge denied that and said Dylan Roof knew what he was getting into when he chose to be his own attorney in this case and he has the constitutional right to do so so he will continue to represent himself. Now Karina Bolster has more for you on some of the testimony that went forth in court today. Raphael, we heard a lot of emotional testimony from family members, but perhaps the most jaw-dropping testimony wasn't from a family member at all. It was from a criminal intelligence officer with the Charleston County Sheriff's Office. Lauren Knapp says Dylan Roof was placed on suicide protocol in August of 2015 when she was notified about Roof's first outbound letter that Roof planned to send. Now, in that letter were writings of a historical book that urged young people to commit suicide. Now, when a search was done of Roof's jail cell, officers found several drawings and documents. Now, one of those documents, which was several pages long, in it, Roof wrote, quote, I do not regret what I did. I'm not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I have killed, end quote. Now, we are expected to hear from an FBI agent tomorrow regarding this, what's being termed a jailhouse manifesto. We're also expected to hear from family members of Cynthia Hurd, Ethel Lance, and Susie Jackson. Now, the prosecution believes it could wrap up its case by Monday afternoon. Raphael? All right, Karina, thank you very much. And we've heard uh, from uh, the defense, from Brooke, at, uh, that there are too many witnesses on the list to be called to testify and that up until this point the witnesses of the families the victims have uh, taken too long uh, in fact Brooks stood up once to say this is his sentencing Dylan's roof not a memorial service stating that it read more like a tribute to the family members than a sentencing phase for Dylan roof uh, attorneys who were in the audience also saw this and said this is not the way capital cases normally go. And in court, Judge Gergel uh, as well said that this was his first capital uh, defense sentencing as well or capital punishment sentencing as well as the prosecutor's term. I talked with an attorney from North Carolina who said that um, these things normally don't work quite this way. Well, the prosecutor seems to be working and operating by a script that only he knows about. Uh, and when the evidence that comes in is as prejudicial as this, it's, it's sort of extraordinary that that evidence is not reviewed beforehand. 
by the by counsel or by the court. And he says, Attorney Hill says that is complicated or compounded when Dylan Roof won't stand up and object or fight for himself. Our Carter Coyle was also in court today. And Carter, you got to hear some of that testimony and see the emotion that the family puts themselves through day in and day out. It's hard for people who don't know these victims. So I cannot imagine what it feels like for the family members, the children of the victims who are in there hearing these details. Again today, similar to yesterday, there was a lot of crying as the, as the testimony kind of progressed through each victim. Also, some lighter moments again as family members went over kind of quirks, personality traits, those sort of things, kind of inside knowledge that the family was uh, laughing quietly at, uh, clearly things that they knew about. Uh, it was especially hard hearing for, from some of the younger witnesses today. Um, the 16 year old daughter of Sharonda Singleton, two of DePayne Middleton doctors' daughters who are both young in their 20s, uh, spoke. The, that, that was especially heartbreaking and hearing how they described their mom as their best friend friend. Um, there, there, there was a break from that emotion toward the end of the day as the jury heard those jailhouse journal writings Karina mentioned earlier. People in the, uh, in the courtroom were kind of shaking their heads in disbelief as they heard of that rant uh, on paper. Again today, Raphael, lots of hugs, people kind of huddling together between testimony, uh, crying some, praying some, just comforting each other. Clearly a, a family uh, comfort for them to all be together in this hard time. And of course, um, this is a death penalty trial. He is looking at either life in prison with no chance of parole or uh, being given a death sentence. Now, I polled some of the family members today, and they're not so crystal clear as to what all of them want. There are some who are decidedly, yes, I want him to get the death penalty. I want him to pay for what he's done. But I talked to several more, and they say, no, we don't believe in the death penalty. Back to you in the studio. Bill, thank you. And earlier this afternoon's this afternoon, Roof's state trial was delayed indefinitely. Now, that trial was set to start in a little over a week on January 17th, but a judge's order says more time is needed to prepare since this federal trial is still ongoing. Roof faces 13 state charges, including nine murder and three attempted murder charges. The trial of Dylan Roof has come to a close. Today, journals the church shooter wrote in jail were read aloud in the courtroom. Of course, he killed nine people inside Mother Emanuel back in 2015. Our Raphael James is outside of the federal courthouse right now. Now, Raphael, the defense claims that uh, the evidence being presented is unfair. That's right, uh, Lisa. They set forth a motion today to the court saying that, uh, among other things, the evidence was unfair. They wanted the judge to take more breaks. Uh, they protested because the prosecution hugged one of the witnesses after she broke down on the witness stand. But you're right. They claim that the uh, victim impact statements or testimony was prejudicial, meaning it was unfair and that there was too much of it. They called it excessive. Uh, for an example of what kind of testimony we're talking about, uh, Sharonda Singleton's son uh, created a poem or a letter to his mother, and some of that was played in court. I'll play a little bit of it for you here. Dear mama, I hope heaven's treating you well. I'm stuck here living on earth, and sometimes I feel like hell without a hatred. And, if I'm and I'm talking about how the judge addressed all of this. There were instances like that, uh, poems, prayers. There was an audio tape of Sharonda Singleton saying a prayer at a friend's father's funeral that happened just a week before she was killed herself. Now, Judge Gurgle did address uh, the defense's 
claim or the defense's claims about these things being inappropriate and unfair. Colby Carter, what do you have to say? I'm sorry. Judd Gergel pretty much immediately after lunch said, okay, let's address this motion. First of all, he said it's completely inaccurate, fundamentally inaccurate. He said that it was standby counsel's effort to, quote, mischaracterize and exaggerate what's happening in the courtroom. Now, as far as the emotion in the courtroom that Roof was complaining about in that uh, in that motion, he said to the judge said to suggest that this could be some sort of sanitized proceeding is pretty much impossible. Judge Gergel said each of these nine victims is a, was a child of God. Each of them uh, had a story to tell and that the jury is entitled to a quick glimpse into their lives. Uh, the judge also said he would pretty much be stunned if the jurors weren't crying at some point and that people weren't getting emotional and that this was all completely proper at this point. Yesterday, prosecutors said Roof was the one who chose to murder so many people and that it was not the government's fault that so many family and friends uh, wanted to talk about the victims. Today, we also heard about papers found in Dylan Roof's Charleston County jail cell. Some uh, were lists of his favorite movies. Others were things like cartoons and drawings of white supremacist symbols. Raphael, we also heard uh, dozens of pages from his jailhouse, what the the prosecutors are calling his jailhouse manifesto. It's a journal he was keeping in jail. Um, he says in that journal he does not regret the shootings and that he has not at any point shed so much as a tear for the, quote, innocent people I killed. Very hard to hear that in court today. And how did the family react to that? Everybody was shaking their heads. There were definitely some kind of gasps. I mean, just to hear it spelled out so coldly, it was it was very difficult. And I imagine the juror, jurors had some reactions to that as well. And as far as that impact testimony goes, that victim impact testimony, they say that is excessive. They don't want to have it uh, that way where the victims get up and spend uh, what the defense would describe as inordinate amounts of time talking about it. And um, Mr. Ruck even stood up in court today and said, this is his sentencing, not a memorial service. Lisa, back to you. Hepatitis gets a knockout punch. Just a few hours ago, I placed a call to my civil lawyer, Brett Grote, of the Pittsburgh-based Abolitionist Law Center. I could hear the excitement in his voice. Then he told me that we had won the Abu Jamal versus Wetzel case, and the judge, Judge Robert Mariani, granted our motion for a preliminary injunction, ordering health care staff to cease their unconstitutional protocol and begin treatment of my hepatitis infection with direct-acting antiviral medications. It was good to hear and good to win. I thought of the good, hard work by Brett and attorney Bob Boyle. I thought of the many people who filled the courtroom because of the organizing prowess of Sister Pam Africa, Dr. Suzanne Ross, Dr. Johanna Fernandez, and others who made it happen. I thought of Dr. Joseph Harris, M.D., who, as an expert witness, hushed the courtroom by his medical explanations, which made scientific arguments so clear that anyone could understand it. And I thought of thousands of prisoners in Pennsylvania suffering from the ravages of hepatitis C, and now who have hope. I thought of the prisoners who suffered from hepatitis C and died from this infection as their liver failed to function. They did not live long enough to see this day. Well, I think spread the word, because, you know, this is not what the Commonwealth wants people to know about, that they really engaged in unconstitutional medical practices designed not to cure and not even to treat, but to work on symptoms instead of disease. 
here you have something that is very rare in the world of medicine. You know, doctors rarely speak of cures. They speak of treatments. Here we have a cure. And the government of Pennsylvania refused to give it to thousands of people for years until they got to the brink of death. My sister Pam told me something the other day about a Puerto Rican brother down Gratis Florida. They had him wait so long that when they approved him for treatment, he took one pill for one day, and by the next day, he was dead. So that's, you know, that, to say that's unconstitutional, again, is an understatement. It's not medicine. You know, it's business, and it's profit, and it's not caring for the health of the people that you support. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Mahanoy. Well, yeah, thanks for calling in, and we're, we're here for the next, the next step forward. <laughs> yeah. Let it happen soon. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 7th, 2017. So I have been told this is our first compensatory call in for 2017. Uh, Folks would like to dial in share their views on the audio clips that we just heard, any other events uh, that took place over the last seven days, or if you just have uh, general observations, thoughts on the system of racism, white supremacy, and counter-racism, please dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 If you would like to participate, that number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, Before we get to some of the things I wanted to share, remind listeners We are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Eight-year anniversary in a matter of weeks. uh, I hope for nearly a decade we have provided constructive information uh, to help victims of racism, especially black people, get a more accurate understanding of what racism is, how it works. Uh, To support the broadcast, you can go to my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Dot com. Uh, you will see the PayPal button linked in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested over the years. Really appreciate all of the support. Uh, hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. And hopefully uh, we will do our part uh, to solving the problem of racism white supremacy. Uh, that's it. A couple things that I wanted to make sure uh, I touched on before we get started. Uh, number one, the essay that I wrote on Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's prediction that Donald Trump would be the successor to President Obama should be published this month. Uh, I had the folks uh, where the piece is going to be published. So hopefully matter of day. 
one way or another, uh, it will be published uh, by February 1. Uh, either they will follow through and it will be published or I will be publishing it myself. So either way, we are counting down the days and the article will be out. Wish it had been out much sooner. I had told some of the listeners uh, about it. Roz recommended, really encouraged me uh, to write the piece. So excited, looking forward. Quick things that I wanted to touch on before we get to some of the callers. Uh, that 60 Minutes piece on Chicago, the violence against black people in Chicago and the enforcement officials, them just saying they're doing their bare minimum, total propaganda piece, in my opinion, uh, in terms of how we are supposed to think about uh, black life and enforcement officers, racism, white supremacy. White people are amazing at playing the victim. I thought some of these white officers were going to break down in tears. <laughs> oh, my Lord, we have just been it's so, so difficult. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. Oh, have nightmares about Black Lives Matter. That's what I was expecting, like total propaganda piece. And I cannot, or I guess I can, and you should not be surprised, but for them to get through that entire segment that lasted about 13 minutes and not mention the name John Burge, what a disgrace. And that's beyond, I mean, that is a total act of racism, white supremacy, first and foremost. But I would say equally, that is horrendous journalism. I mean, context. Next, the segment, Dylan Storm Roof. I don't know if people have paid attention to the Dylan Roof trial. I get my general sense is that people were kind of paying attention when they were at the point of determining his guilt or innocence. And now that he's been convicted and we're at the sentencing phase, my general sense is that people are not paying attention to this. They're focused on other things, complaining about Donald Trump, uh, cheering and celebrating the end of the Obama era. Lots of different things <laughs> that people are focused on the quote unquote hate crime uh, against this uh, white male uh, mental patient in Illinois that you heard about as well. People have focused on many other things except this trial. It, many profound things uh, have come out even just in the past five days. Number one, Mr. Roof was quoted as saying, I consider myself well versed in racism. You are going to hear that quote a lot moving forward on the context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade, I am not an expert on racism, white supremacy, Mr. Dylan Storm Roof, race soldier, convicted murderer. I'm not even sure if they charge Dylan Roof with a hate crime. I have to double check. Mr. Roof said, I consider myself well versed in racism. Not ignorant. Next, he referred to himself as Law Aryan, L-I-L Aryan, uh, in one of these online forums where racists, race soldiers, they go and post uh, about Negros and, you know, what they need to do to bolster the white nation. I thought that was significant. He had a film list for as frequently as movies and TV programs come up on this program. And just in general, when people discuss racism, white supremacy, I was astounded they did not give the total list but they mentioned some of the films if people want to do any research and see if you can find uh the full list of films uh that apparently these were his favorites some of the ones they mentioned 12 years a slave titanic pride and prejudice the notebook the great gatsby uh the version that came out in the early 70s uh and american history x 
Some of these are, you know, flagrantly about racism, white supremacy. Some of these are not. I've seen uh, quite a few of these. I have not seen the notebook. I will try to make time to see that down the road. I will stop here. Uh, folks would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. If I may take one more moment, Mr. Dylan Stormroof. Shame on me for not knowing if he was convicted of a hate crime. I should know that. I'll double check. I'm a victim. I'm still learning. But Mr. Dylan Stormroof, just if you take that statement again that I said, you're going to be hearing a whole lot moving forward on the cows. Uh, Dylan Roof says, I consider myself very well versed in racism. Now, take that statement and then what you heard in the audio clip where he said, it's not fair that I have to sit here and listen to these niggers talk about the other niggers that I shot and killed. That's not fair. Just put those two pieces of information together uh, as to why I say the incorrectness of using the term fair to mean justice, beauty, logic and white for the compensatory call-in i do request if we could not use metaphors uh we've talked about that a lot certainly people who have listened to the book study with gwen eiffel the breakthrough metaphors uh racists in my view frequently they employ metaphors to be deceptive they're doing it deliberately uh and comparing uh items people things situations that are not equivalent they do this on a regular basis Uh, i think a lot of victims including myself a lot of times and we've had some great illustrations in the recent weeks on this very uh, program the compensatory call-in where i think sometimes victims we're all still learning myself included and sometimes just we're not we have not come to a conclusion we're still trying to just uh get a better understanding of our position or how we think Uh, on a particular matter, which is totally fine. I'm in that position myself, but just sometimes I think we end up using analogies or metaphors to try to help articulate our views. And frequently, same thing, we're comparing things that are not equivalent uh, and or we really are not providing specific detail about what we mean what are we really talking about as opposed to just throwing out some cliche or analogy or a bit of rhetoric that is not really specific and detailed mr fuller says that on a regular basis codification is about details with that uh thank you kindly i will prompt about the metaphors and also if you know you are in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button super appreciate it with that, uh, the, first few, uh, the first few people uh, who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, feel free. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. So I've also noticed that we, well, I, as a victim, have, we haven't been keeping, we, we stopped talking about Emmett Till lately and we haven't I haven't talked about him since two thousand fourteen, uh the anniversary of when he died. And I'm actually grateful about the book, 
um, that Linda Williams Jackson wrote the book in the second audio, the name of it being um, Midnight Without a Moon. And I like that book actually a lot. I'm just hearing it, just hearing the book being explained because they put Emmett Till's death, well, what the author has learned about his death, and puts it through a different perspective. In other words, puts it in through the eyes of a different person. And that's really powerful to me because throughout my life I've learned that everybody can, everybody sees everything differently in their own way. And I've always remembered that. I've always noticed that throughout certain people, everybody's going to have a different opinion about something. And it's just interesting to me. And they put it in a book. And I actually like that a lot. And it's helped me get, it helped me move on through life knowing that. And just about, yeah, that's, the book, it, the book seems pretty interesting and I would like to read it. And, um, just about another one of the audios that was played, the one about the 14-year-old white male who put on social media racial slurs about another black person in high school. And it's just, I find that pretty interesting because just throughout, like, people in, teenagers in my generation, like, years, year after year, we, they start to, white teenagers start to be more bold with what they say, like, how racist they are, they're just, like, more bold and direct towards people, and when you call them out, they're like, oh, I'm not racist, I'm just, it's just a new trend, everybody's saying it, so I decided why not say it, so, and it kind of is a trend because nigga has been used since how however long, 400 years ago, whenever it started. It's just, it's interesting, especially throughout high school where most gossip and drama starts. And just throughout my opinion, I think that that white person was afraid of that black person because if you if he wasn't afraid, he wouldn't have said it over a screen, over social media, behind the screen. He would have said it over that. That's just common sense. See, I figure that the next day he's going to try to avoid that black person because he he has no idea what he's capable of. He could probably fight him, and once he sees him, so just out of my knowledge and out of my logic of being a high school teenager, that would probably happen. And, yeah, it's just pretty, it's not weird. I I really expected that to happen, and I know for a fact that that would happen. And, cause, because I've seen it before, it's it's nonsense, really. It's, it's nonsense how social media has become to my generation. And, yeah, that's all I wanted to share. Thank you for taking my call. Sorry, young scholar. Yes, sir. I just wanted to say uh, quickly, this is uh, that was the first call. That was our young uh, scholar in the Bay Area. Always great to uh, hear from him. The incident uh, that you were referencing, uh, the the racist child where he put this Snapchat video online uh, calling one of his black classmates a nigger and, you know, look at the nigger eating chicken and all of that. There was a fight. Uh, this incident uh, happened sometime like the video and all that this happened some time ago so the racist child who made the video and the the victim the black student uh that black child got upset and fought that white child and apparently he you know put some hands on him 
they suspended the black child. They didn't do anything to the white child. And so as this has continued to evolve and people say, hey, that's extra super racist to have this little white terrorist uh, go and abuse verbally this black student. He gets upset, justifiably so, responds, and he's the one that gets punished while the racist white child, nothing happens to him. So after this went on for a while and people said that they thought that was racist and, you know, everybody, if, if you're going to punish the black student, then you got to go after the white student too. Now, uh, this is what they're doing where the uh, local attorney is looking to prosecute him uh, for this video and what have you. Just add that in that there was a fight. So your theory about this white student being afraid of this black student might have been so because the black student did not just leave with uh, he does not just cower and allow this to happen. He eventually responded and uh, put hands on this little racist child. Uh, the person that spoke up uh, who was going to. Oh, did you, you want to add something else? Young, young sir. Oh, no, the, uh, that's all. I was just I, I expected the black child to get in trouble because just out of just out of knowledge of being who I am. The black person would usually get in trouble rather than the white person, even though he displays racial slurs over Snapchat and the black person encountered it and defended himself towards that. I knew he would he would have gotten in trouble. That's just that's just logic and common sense just in the world that we live in right now. That's all I wanted to say. For sure. He was uh, charged in and this happened in Pennsylvania and this all this happened uh, in October. So this is like from two, three months ago, but anyway, this happened in Pennsylvania and the black, the victim, the black student, uh, he was charged, uh, in juvenile court, uh, for retaliating against this racist child. Uh, the male caller who spoke up, uh, we heard you already. You're going to share as well. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus and greetings to all the, uh, callers and listeners. Um, I wanted to comment on the, the, uh, the Chicago piece since I am, in Chicago and from Chicago, um, I, I never agree with you more. Uh, never agree more a hundred percent with you on that. Uh, on that sixty minutes being a propaganda piece. Uh, Gary McCarthy, uh, Chicago's former Supreme Race soldier, uh, was basically was basically advertising uh, for stop and frisk in Chicago. Uh, his blaming Chicago police. Uh, not doing enough stops and arrests on the escalating violence is is definitely uh, the ultimate propaganda piece for bringing in stop and frisk in Chicago legally. Uh, and his vitriol of you know it, you know his 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 unconnected vitriol with with Eddie Johnson, who is the current uh, Chicago police superintendent and is a black man. Uh, he, it, it, it sounded like he was indirectly blaming him for the cops not doing their job, you know, typical, typical racist to, you know, blame the black man for all the violence, even though, uh, McCarthy, uh, was the, like I said, Supreme race soldier in Chicago when all the violence, you know, started and did happen. Uh, also too, uh, when you, when you, uh, you know, it was interesting. You said about them not mentioning John Burge. I caught that as well, but they also did not mention the name of, the race soldier who killed Laquan, Laquan McDonald, and that was Jason Van Dyke. So they missed his name as well, which I, you know, I caught immediately. I was like, why didn't they mention his name? So uh, that was that was, you know, pretty interesting. 
Uh, I also mentioned last week about uh, another thing about the journalism that they didn't do. And I read this. This is in the Chicago Tribune where they said 70% of the murders have gone unsolved. So, you know, I, I, I'm wondering why they, why they didn't mention that as well. Uh, they also mentioned the, uh, they also mentioned a, uh, a priest that known, you know, nationwide in the Chicago area, a uh, white priest, Father Flager, who is the, uh, who is the pastor of the predominantly black Catholic church here in St. Sabina. They had a march here uh, where they were holding crosses of all of the victims of the shootings in Chicago, uh, majority black. Uh, I, I talked to a person who went to that march and who, uh, you know, even though mostly all of the victims were black, who were the people, who were majority of the people holding up the crosses with the faces of these victims? They were white people. So I, I thought that was, <laughs> I, I, I found that pretty interesting as well. And then last Father week, uh, Flager, I, I just wanted this, uh, I just wanted to add real quick. Father Flager was the star yeah. of uh, Spike Lee's Chirac uh, that came out last year. Unless I'm mistaken, I only know that because I was forced to sit through it one time, which was one time too many. My apologies for the interruption, sir. Oh, oh God bless you on that one. <laughs> but uh, I want to also talk to you uh, talk about the, the the torture case that was happening here in Chicago, which is getting a lot of light here. And also, com- also comment on um, Whoopi Goldberg had recently commented on that. And in her confusion, you know, she mentioned that uh, this torture case is comparable to the Dylan Roof case. And, I, you know, I found that very, very problematic uh, with that because, first of all, Dylan Roof killed nine people. Uh, Dylan Roof assassinated a public official, and wasn't remorseful about it at all. Um, the thing, too, that, 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 really, that really got me was majority of the people who are uh, speaking out against these uh, black teenagers who tortured the white victim have been black people. And the white people who have commented on this have been blaming Black Lives Matter. <laughs> so... I thought that was, and, and, and I think one of the videos, uh, the one of the audios you played had mentioned that as well. So, yeah, that, that, you know, it's like white people are blaming Black Lives Matter and black people are blaming these black teenagers who are victims as well within the system of white supremacy. Uh, don't condone the actions at all, but, you know, I, 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 I just don't understand how black people are just like all over these teenagers. Uh, so... And Whoopi Goldberg's uh, comment about it, you know, is, you know, just, I guess, just VGQ or confusion or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I, I just thought that was, uh, that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, and um, uh, that's all I have in my notes right now. I'll, uh, I'll be in my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, number one, I'll start off with the uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport incident. Uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport is the airport uh, myself and my offspring we use uh, when we make the choice of uh, traveling by air. Uh, it is a very large airport. Uh, I've never seen so many 
in the incident that took place yesterday. Never seen so many white people running for their lives uh, uh, in the different uh, clips that they showed. Uh, also running with their hands up. Uh, it looked like I saw uh, a team of white females, some sort of athletic team, and they were running in, in, in almost perfect order. Uh, running for their lives, but anyway, uh, the reason why the main reason why I brought up the incident because maybe it's me, but it seems as though that that uh, there was a failure uh, to uh, racially classify the shooter. Uh, I heard one report very early in the incident where he was quote unquote racially classified as, and it's gonna be confusing, white Hispanic, especially the word Hispanic. Uh, uh, I don't even know what the heck that means, although I've heard it for the most part, the majority of my life. Uh, but when you look at him, he doesn't appear to be a white person. Uh, number two, uh, just wanna briefly talk about the, the hypocrisy of the two cases uh involving uh the uh the four non-white black people who is going to, who is basically i'm not going to use the, the metaphor but they're going to be they're going to be uh prosecuted more than likely to the extent full extent of the, of the law whereas uh just recently before that uh the case where the uh the black male that was raped by a group of uh white males who basically uh, are living living their lives normally? Uh, I think one of them may have may have gotten some community hours attached to to them that, that to him that he has to work off. Uh, let alone talking about uh, in this case with the black people, it was it was uh, called a hate crime and and multiple other charges going to be placed on them and and I'm pretty sure that they're going to get uh, convicted. It looked like at the hearing. The uh, according to the drawings, the judge even appeared to be a non-white black person, or at least a non-white person appeared to be by the drawings. They they didn't have you know sometimes they don't have the camera but they have drawings. That judge appeared to be a, a non-white person. Uh, number three, uh, I don't know if anybody has watched this, and I and and I'm I'm beginning to have a little bit of doubt. Uh, about it, but anyway, uh, a Wendy's commercial. Uh, it re if if you care to see it now, it's actually is on the uh, NFL uh, football games uh, 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 period of time. It, it's uh, the commercial is, is right, but it's a Wendy's commercial. Now I saw it uh, on a, on a associate's uh, Facebook uh, yesterday for the first time, and what. It, it was a white female that was selling a selling a quarter a new hamburger, and for some reason they wanted to make it comparable with uh, bees. That uh, some question about their wings. Now, mind you, these bees were were drawn in uh, very very black, as far as I'm talking about the color black, and their lips were. Uh, exaggerated like the uh, the old cartoon pictures that they would have depicting uh, non-white black people and and both of their voices sounded like straight from the uh, 
the series back in the fifties of Amen for Andy. Uh, now, when when I saw the commercial just a few minutes ago, it seems to have they seem to have changed it to whereas instead of having two B's, it went down to one B, and that B sounded like more like a white person. Uh, so you can check it out. I thought I was sending uh, you, Gus, uh, that on, 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 on your Facebook so you can see it and everybody else can see it, but I, I probably messed it up uh, and it didn't get to you. Uh, I'll try to do it again. Uh, uh, it reminded me of a lecture that, that uh, they had us on uh, talking about African bees and the African bees were different from the, from the, the quote-unquote normal bee. It's very aggressive. Uh, is is they, they're very aggressive. They're very dangerous. Much more dangerous than than other bees. And well, this this is actually a lecture they had uh, us uh, to uh, sit in on uh, when I was a firefighter. Uh, last but not least, uh, the Joe Mixon situation. I don't. Uh, uh, I'm sure that you're aware of it, uh, uh, Gus. Uh, uh, with the uh, with Brent Mus Mus Musburger on the live program. He was basically kind of uh, supporting uh, Mr. Mixon and encouraging him, uh, but at the same time, we, we got to keep we got to keep our we got to keep our attention on white people and their history. Brent Musburger has been a sports a sports reporter for a long time, uh, and he is most known when it comes to racism and white supremacy for his lo a long. Uh, notation he did on Tommy Smith and John Carlos basically identified them similar similar to the, what they did, similar to a Nazi salute. This is uh, Brett, Brett, Brett Musburger. I'm, I'm messing up his name, but uh, uh, nevertheless, that, that's uh, basically uh, what I have to uh, uh, report on, and thank everybody for listening. Uh, the commercial, I haven't seen it, but I did locate it. So I'm posting it on my Facebook page right now. Um, when I was in the process of looking for the commercial, apparently other people, this must be a, a commercial that's only been out a week or so. Um, but other people also think this is racist. Those are some of the first, uh, links that I saw oh, okay. other people okay. saying that they also think that this commercial is racist the way that they have the, whatever the bees look like. I'll post it so people can check it out for themselves. You talking about the one with the two bees? I have no idea. <laughs> Just whatever brand new Wendy's commercial with bees in it. Uh, that's the one I'm posting, and it seems other people think it's racist too. But I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Okay, because like, like I said, when I saw the second one, I'm saying, wow, they really went and changed that real quick. Uh, because the one that I saw on my on my associate's Facebook was actually two bees. And it was to me, it was like obvious that that uh, they were depicting the voices of two black people, and they had they had they had thick, big red lips. Now, on the one that I just saw about maybe an hour ago, it was only one B, and it sounded like a white person. They, in other words, in other words, they went it quickly because they got so much uh, attention, negative attention from it. I guess that they went quickly and changed it and change this commercial inside, you know, uh, tweaked it a little bit as far as that concern. You know, I thought that was interesting. That's all.
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening to everyone. Um, I just wanted to say uh, it, it appears to me that the majority of uh, non-white black people fail to realize that, um, like, I guess certain, you know, like racist agencies or racist groups can orchestrate like anything that they want and they can put it out um, in the news and and try to direct um, your thinking any way that they would they would like it to to be and and I just say that with the I guess these uh, Chicago teenagers that you know supposedly um, you know was kidnapped and assaulted this you know white person or white teenager or whatever it's just like uh, it's, it seems like it's out of people out of the possibility that people think that hey maybe this is something that's that's being orchestrated and i'm not saying that it is of course i have no proof that it is or not but i think it's always something that um people should consider and and then because i see that a lot of people are just apologizing like oh my god you know these people are horrible they did this um and we don't really know if that actually happened but Anyway, um, I wanted, I didn't get a chance to listen to the, uh, the news clips played. I will, I'll go back and listen to it in the archives. But um, I recently had the opportunity to travel outside of the uh, United States, um, which I, I've done before. But um, And what I gathered from this particular trip is that just when dealing with TSA and other, uh, other security agencies at, in different countries is that um, as a non-white black person, you're not supposed to be traveling. You're supposed to stay on the plantation that you were born in and stay there and, you know, suffer from the racism there. But what, what I experienced really, especially from TSA here in the United States after my trip was, um, they, I, I never experienced this before, but they were question questioning me about everything like you know my employment um and how do I, how do, how was i able to pay for this trip it wasn't no you know extra expensive trip but it's like uh i guess got the feeling like uh nigga how how are you traveling like this and particularly it was a white male um tsa agent or uh, i guess customs agent let me say that where they went through every little piece of my luggage again i've never experienced this and i have traveled outside of the uh, country before and they went through everything they looked through all i take some um herbal supplements sometimes they went through that i'm assuming they thought that it was uh you know some type of drugs i was some uh, contraband that i was smuggling into the u.s and even with that he, he took my uh, supplements and took it over to a separate area where i couldn't view exactly what he was doing and just my my immediate thoughts was uh this uh white person could be planting he could be trying to poison me or he can just say whatever he wants and say oh you got some heroin or you got some type of illegal illicit drugs that you're smuggling so it, i was basically at you know under you know whatever power he he had which is you know white supremacy of course but um you know they asked me many questions like who are you visiting um and this guy particularly because right now i am um unem technically i'm unemployed right now but of course i've managed to save up some money to be able to travel 
um, because that's just something that I enjoy doing. And um, specifically, he's like, where are you? Where, where do you work? And I'm like, uh, right now I'm unemployed. Maybe I should have just made up something, but I didn't. And then he said, well, how are you, how are you unemployed? I don't even travel like this, and I have a job. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that have to do with me, you know? But he was, it just seemed like he was saying, hey, man, you, nigga, you're supposed to stay put and, you know, let us practice white supremacy on you here, and, and that's it. And uh, last but not least, um, I heard people t- uh, speaking about this in general, about codifying themselves when talking or, or just relating to white people out in public. And I just noticed when you are traveling, um, particularly me being a, you know, a relatively young um, black male, um, white people, especially white males, they want to talk to me. They want to, I think they want to know like, hey, how did, why are you over here? How did you get over here? You know, but they come and, and of course they do it, do it under the guise of being nice and just, you know, making small talk. And, and at times, I want to codify myself and not even talk to the, I want to ignore them, to be honest, but I don't do that. I usually talk and I try to ask them a lot of questions. And it just seems like these guys have been traveling to these countries for years. They have houses in these other countries and, um, and they are able to marry the women of these non-white, non-black countries, so to speak. And um, they can, they, they're just able to do whatever they want. And I'm like, wow, that's, to me, it's just another example of global white supremacy. And, and they get the opportunities to do stuff that I haven't got the opportunity to do. I mean, but it's just, they, they question me a lot. And particularly, there was a white male from um, Australia that asked me about, um, hey, so what do you think about, you know, your new uh, president? And I'm like, and I just said, uh, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to to see what happens in the next four years or eight years. You know, I think I said uh, I want. I'm looking forward to see what happens in the next uh, eight years. And um, you know, he kind of chuckled and 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 we talked about something else. But um, that's all I have to share right now. Thank you. Fascinating. Just encourage uh, listeners to not lollygag if you have commentary you would like to share go ahead get your hand up now do not wait till the last minute if you have something to share 641-715-3640 the code is 564-943-POUND press star 6 if you would like to participate and again please do not wait until the last minute Uh, I think that was uh, Mr. Ken Steele Yes. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to uh, start by saying that I'm in uh, Rancho Cucamonga, uh, California uh, today, and I want to issue a warning to all listeners and all victims of racism that are living in Chicago. You're entering a very, very dangerous period. They're setting you up. Um, for, I I believe, systematic annihilation. I'm not even speaking hyperbolically. When I was living in Chicago, the final year that I was living there, in the summer that I was living there, um, I had noticed that at night uh, they would routinely set up 
roadblocks on major thoroughfares throughout the city. I know this because I would uh, routinely just drive around um, looking at car crashes, really. That was uh, one of the things that I really like to do. But um, I would just see that they were um, setting up more and more of these roadblocks. And I don't think that that is uh, a coincidence. I think that this latest story that they're telling right now about this supposed um, uh, kidnapping and torture of uh, a supposedly uh, mentally disabled um, white person um, is a total fabrication um, designed to legitimize what is coming for the people of Chicago. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump uh, has publicly stated um, to Rahm Emanuel that he intends to use federal uh, powers to intervene in the uh, city of Chicago. And there are a number of very concerted uh, gentrification programs, uh, problems that are being run as we speak, including that Whole Foods uh, that was set up there. So uh, if you are a resident of Southside Chicago, watch out because this situation is about to get way worse, way fast. And the people of Chicago are being conditioned to accept, uh, accept what is um, to come. And it's not going to be in benefit to any victim of white supremacy. What is about to happen there? That is precisely one of the reasons why I left um, I just saw that it was getting worse and worse. And one of the final events that made me uh, make the decision to just get out of there was that a close friend of mine was uh, recently was attacked um, in Chicago and uh, somebody put up a gun in his face and this was apps. He was walking home uh, from work. So the fact that, my friend who was not involved in any sort of um, any sort of uh, wayward activity, any sort of activity that would draw um, uh, specific violent attention to himself other than just being black and outside at night in Chicago, um, it led to him uh, having a near-death experience. That was a signal enough to me that it was time to leave. But for those of you who cannot leave, um, just prepare and be aware that you are being set up for some tremendous violence on the horizon. Uh, I don't know if that's a metaphor, but um, there, there's tremendous violence that's uh, about to come to the people, uh, to the, the victims of racism that are living in Chicago. Also, um, related to that, uh, they are using this incident and they're using showcased uh, victims of racism to feed fuel uh, the energy that is behind um, seeing this as a grave offense. I believe that uh, what is her name? Uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, was recently compared this situation to um, the attack uh, that was staged by Dylan Roof on the uh, AME Church, um, 
I, I just, the fact that that was even uh, put on broadcast TV should be a signal to you that um, there is some tremendous violence that is about to occur behind this. They used uh, President Barack Obama and his uh, so-called bully pulpit. He was using that to uh, fuel the flames or rather to fuel the energy that's behind um, railroading these uh, these children, uh, these young people that are being uh, charged with uh, all of these crimes. Um, please, 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 uh, victims of racism, do not succumb to all of this energy that is being um, placed behind this. I believe they also used uh, Montel Williams to say that these people deserve the death penalty and that these people are should be locked up for for life uh, and just very hyperbolic speech coming out of um, what appears to be selected showcased uh, victims of racism. Uh, please do not succumb to this. And also, hang tight, real uh, just going just forward, to, uh, matter make sure we get everybody in so they get their one chance, and then once we have our extra time, you can. Feel free to follow follow uh, follow up with whatever else you have left, Mr. Steele. Uh, we have other people that we have not heard from at all. Any folks that have not been able to speak at all, you should go now. I uh, heard both of you. Uh, I will get Roz first, and then we'll get our other caller. All right. Um, greetings to you, Gus, and to the other callers and listeners. Um, yeah, I agree with uh, Ken Steele. I think that they're setting up something potentially major. Um, Thomas in New York has talked about for quite a while that they want to uh, clear the black people out of Chicago, kind of like what they're facilitating in Detroit right now. So I do agree with him on that. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, weirdly enough, last night I was coming home from work, and uh, just as we were about to get off the highway, uh, just speaking to what Gus always talks about, sobriety would be best. Black male, walking pedestrian, drunk, just drunk, and stopped by the police. Um, it was just, it was just the most incredible scene to bear witness to because I've, it's been a long time since I've seen um, a, a black male stopped while walking and be intoxicated like I did yesterday. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I love the clip that you played about the uh, black inventors. Uh, I thought that was just really insightful. I appreciate that. Um, hopefully we can hear more content like that. It kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema's book, uh, Blacks in Science, Ancient and Modern. It's a good book for people to check out if they're um, into that sort of stuff, studying the, excuse me, the history of our black inventors. Um, also, the clip that you played with the black female who discussed, or she wrote the book um, following the Emmett Till story, I found that to be pretty fascinating and um, something that we should deal with, uh, black people should deal with in regards to being more understanding of other victims of racism when they are fearful. Um, this system is designed to terrorize and make us scared. Um, just studying the history of seasoning plantations uh, should give enough insight into that so that we not, we're not judgmental of uh, other victims of racism who behave and react in the most fearful manner and may not react the way that we might feel is appropriate in the situation simply because we might not be fearful in the same way that that person is potentially under the same circumstances, or we might assume that we wouldn't be, I'll put it that way. Um, so I just thought that clip was very important. Um, 
the clip that you played about the black female that she was discussing, the uh, black people patronizing restaurants that practice racism, I found that to be very interesting as well. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, Fanta Soda. A lot of people don't know that Fanta was actually, uh, it's a Coca-Cola company, but it was actually a Nazi drink. And specifically Nazis were drinking it during the uh, World War II, World War One era that was considered the Nazi drink. And um, any money that was generated by it was funneled directly into racism, white supremacy via the uh, Nazi activities uh, in Germany. So it's just something for us to think about. Um, I thought that was really great, the assessment that she gave about us not supporting businesses that practice racism and looking for businesses that don't practice racism and uh, put money back into the community in regards to us uh, trying to patronize businesses of those types. Um, also, the clip you played about the uh, rape of children in the Central African Republic by the uh, French government is just disgusting, and it just proves to me that the UN is completely impotent, impotent in every way, shape, or form. To me, it is the global political wing of racism, white supremacy. Um, the role that the, U the UN has always played is in protecting global sexual deviance commit committed by white people from all different countries and just protecting white supremacy and allowing these uh, more powerful racists the ability to just do whatever they want on a global scale. And uh, the non-white countries are having to just sit and suffer uh, whatever the consequences are of what these uh, sub, sub uh, I would just say, disagreeable uh, beings do. Um, the clip about the Chicago, violence in Chicago, uh, the, there was a black male ex-police officer who said in the clip that uh, the Chicago PD is not racist, yet there are racists in the department. And I find that to be an oxymoron when you understand the origin of uh, the police department in slave catching and uh, protecting racism, white supremacy, and facilitating the practice of brutalization against black people specifically. So to me, every police department is a racist disorganization made by racists um, in order to subjugate non-white people and more specifically and intensely black people. So I found that to be a very um, confusing phrase, I think, that would be confusing to other non-white victims of racism, racism, white supremacy. And the final thing I wanted to touch on was your clip on Dylan Roof. Um, one thing I do uh, like about him is that he's extremely blatant about how he feels about racism, white supremacy, and his hatred for black people. He is not um, uh, false, making false act, uh, statements of remorse. I'm, I'm really glad that that's the way that he's approaching this, because I think it should help to bring home um, the idea that this is the way white people function all the time, and that when you see white people displaying uh, the remorse in any form or fashion, it's usually remorse because they're caught, not remorse because they're um, uh, sorry for what they did to black people. And also, when you were discussing him using the term that it was not fair for him to have to hear uh, niggas complaining about him murdering their relatives, I thought about it the same way. I thought he was saying it's not white for me to have to hear them because white people don't care. They don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, I murdered you, so what? Deal with it. On to the next. And as soon as you said it, as soon as you said it, it made me think that he was saying it's not white for me. It's not fair. It's not white for me to have to sit here and listen to this nonsense. White people kill black people for fun. That's the way it was. That's the way it should always be in perpetuity. And um, I, I just I hope that he continues to a lawyer for himself and puts himself right into the death penalty and hopefully they do give it to him. I don't care what the victims of racism want in regards to that. I think he deserves to be off as quickly as possible. And I hope it does happen. I, I think they might find a way not to do so, but I hope that that does happen. Thank you very much. Oh, and the last thing, 
August. I'm just excited. Um, Peace Keepers posted on uh, the publishing of the piece that you wrote. I'm, I'm super excited to hear to read it because I love your writing. Um, if they don't do so and you have to publish it yourself, just please let us know. I'm just excited to see what you have to had to write about that. And I know that you did a great honor to to Dr. Wellsing. Thank you so much, and I'm I'm my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Yes, sir. Feel free, sir. Hey, uh, greetings to the guests and um, greetings to the host. Um, yeah, um, I would first like to, to pick back off the, uh, the Chicago violence. I would like to remind everyone that 70%, I was told 70% of the Chicago shootings are not solved. So, you know, the whole notion of the black-on-black crime and all that type of stuff, you know, just keep that in mind. Draw your own conclusions, whatever that may be. I got my own. Um, also, uh, at next door, I'm going to be real quick. But next door is a, a, a white kid that lives next door. Um, I got two daughters. They all play regularly. There's another black kid. Uh, two hours down, they all play together. Um, and one day, uh, I found this little white kid. He had to be about seven or eight. And he was just tugging and pulling on this black kid. Um, tugging and, and calling him a thug, and and I, I said, hey, uh, you know what you're doing? Uh, quit, cut it out. He looked at me with his blue eyes and said, we're playing cops and robbers. So you know, I, <laughs> you know, I I had to cut that out right off the bat. I, uh, and I doubt that the black kid regularly plays the cops, so I already knew what it was, and that just proves your point, Gus, that uh. At, at a very young age, white people are not white kids. A man, woman, a child is not ignorant about racism. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, I, I often uh, watch the cartoons that my, my little girls, I got three year old and one year old, uh, I watch the cartoons that they watch, and I have picked up on one, which all the time, I, I point out racism all the time. And it, it, it was just one episode, though, I forgot the name of the show. Um, and it was about, uh, like fishes in the sea, like whales and sharks. And, um, and for some reason, you know, um, the, you know, I, I guess, uh, it was about the sharks having a bad rap and it was like a big metaphor, you know, uh, the, the shark and he went on a long tangent song about how, um, sharks, uh, always get stereotyped and, you know, I mean, this is for children. So, you know, it's, it was more subtle than that, but it was talking about uh, a shark. Uh, I just want to tell my tale, the shark tale, and I immediately had connected that with racism. Uh, third thing, uh, have you guys ever talked about uh, Pepe Frog, the little green frog that be all over the Internet and stuff? Have you guys I, ever I, brought I, that up yet? That's not something that I haven't uh, touched on. I think some other folks have uh, brought that up and them saying that it's racist and that kind of became a bigger deal kind of towards the end of 2016. But that's not something that I've talked about on the program. Yeah, I think it's it's very important, you know, that we pay attention to that because white people, they they are very uh, good at replacing the white face with a green face. And now he's like a, a symbol of the alt-right, uh, I mean, quote-unquote alt-right that they got going on. I think people need to put, pay close attention to that because they, they do a good job at stuff like that, replacing, you know, 
and and now you know they're represented by a green frog. So it's just taking the whole white out of it. And you know, I just picked that up uh, right away. You know, uh, 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 one more thing. Um, uh, 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 this, uh, uh, the the environmental racism. Uh, were you ever going to touch on that in in any uh, future programs? Environmental racism. Absolutely. I have uh, a Chicago book, no less. I have one specifically on Chicago, this problem there, and then another one that addresses it more broadly. Uh, But black people specifically have this big problem for uh, black people. Uh, In fact, I saw a report uh, this week where it was it was, uh, I believe, the Koch brothers. They were talking about fossil fuels and saying that we need to uh, get black people involved in this because fossil fuels is going to be the next wave of environmental racism. So we got to get black people on board with this. I was stunned because I'd never heard uh, anything associated with the Koch brothers. We're like, yeah, we got to get these black people riled up and get them, you know, motivated and paying attention to this. This is the next wave of racism. So yes, we should have uh, multiple. We should have done at least one of these last year, but we failed 2017. That'll be on our assignment list. Okay, good, good. Yeah, because I was waiting on that. I heard you had mentioned that you know, a while back. Um, and uh, last thing I want to say before I get on the line, uh, Gus, I, I, I'm very grateful because um, uh, as soon as I started listening to your program, you were talking about sobriety is best in the time of war. Uh, I have been eight months clean, no alcohol, no marijuana. So I, I thank you. My family, thank you. Uh, I'm completely clean, and, uh, and and I guess that's it. Beautiful. Best news of the day. That is spectacular. Awesome illustration of black self-respect right there. I know Dr. Welsing, a uh, huge <laughs> commendation for that. That is uh, outstanding. Best news I've heard for the day. That Just that right there. We just had more black people who were serious about that. I mean, the amount of problems, the amount of money that we could save just in so many different ways. Uh, just doing great job just taking care of yourself so you can be there for those young girls that you have. That is phenomenal, sir. Music to my ears. Oops, sorry, metaphor, metaphor. But that is phenomenal. Always love hearing that. Uh, yeah, and I, had, I had more to share, but uh, I guess I say that for workplace racism. Uh, also, uh, yeah, I forgot one more thing about the little white kid next door. Uh, also, on a, a separate occasion, uh, that trampoline, the trampoline in their backyard, and this, I could see it over my fence. I also seen, you know, our kids experiment. He was experimenting sexually with a little black kid <laughs> on the trampoline. Like, they was, like, playing with each other. And, you know, uh, me and my wife was laughing at it, but uh, I later on thought about it. Like, that's, a, that's some racism right there. Like, already, you know, uh, you know, in the front yard, he's tugging and pulling on them, playing cops and robbers and calling them a little thug and stuff. And in the backyard, you know, you're looking at his genitalia. And, I mean, yeah, it just all makes sense, man. I, I, I truly appreciate the show. You guys, you can help me a lot, and uh, I, I guess that's all, all I, I had to say. For sure, appreciate that, sir. Uh, other folks, if we have not heard from you at all, uh, you should speak up now. Uh, just to the last comment that he made that was together in the 60 Minutes report on Chicago that uh, abusing police abuse of black people, and then he said, uh, the black officer who said that he quote unquote snitched and tried to speak up and say that incorrect things were happening, he said that he watched a black male literally strip searched right out in public, which is the exact same thing Eric Garner said about New York's finest before he was choked to death. 
Daniel Pantaleo. Uh, anyone we have not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Good evening, Thomas from New York. Um, I had a few things to say about the clips, but um, absolutely, man. Well, very constant um, strip searching was very big uh, in both New Jersey and New York um, by the police. Um, yeah, Chicago is going to do a phase of gentrification. Uh, this is going to be forced gentrification, unlike New York. So um, this is going to be... Um, Implemented, I, I believe, when um, the president is no longer the president and he goes back to Chicago, um, that's going to be their one of the key things they're going to use to move them, start removing black people. Because when I went to Chicago, what was shocking was how close the the, the quote unquote um, hood was to the to the downtown business district. Um, something that's really, you know, that doesn't happen <laughs> in New York. You know, like they really uptown. Or we're across the river, uh, we're not like in that area. We can't afford it, you know. So they, they how they had like so. I mean, even Capri Green, I don't think was too far from like down in that area. I was like, wow. Uh, so that that I could see being a huge um, case for the case. Um, as far as the cliffs go, um, the piece about the inventors, very interesting. Um. I think that when the, the, the journalist did a little chuckle um, around the time when she was talking about the, he, he wanted to ask her questions about the black women inventors, the people who um, invented um, things, asked her um, here. And it was like, yeah, these black y'all, really are into your hair, huh? And she kind of um, diverted away from that. But I just felt like that was um, an act of racism on his behalf. Um, of course, you know, the hair thing is a big deal amongst black people. And uh, I would like to say when I was a kid, um, Super Soaker, um, I'm glad to hear that was invented by a black man. That, that was uh, a game changer um, as far as um, water guns. Because prior to that, you had a little water pistol, you put water in it, and you squeeze the trigger, and it got a little spritz that came out. And when the Super Soaker came out, you could pump it. I mean, it caused a lot of fights, but... It was a great, you know, thing. Um, so I'm glad to hear a black guy did that. Um, Fisk University, all I kept thinking about while hearing that piece is um, Union General Clinton B. Fisk, a white man, That's who the school is named after. Um, so, you know, um, <laughs> it's all I can think about. Um, they cut the guy, the cop's picture out, and put it on the urinal, and paid order at his retirement party. I mean, dedicated. Um, dedicated, dedicated. I, 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 I like that piece. Uh, I thought that was um, pretty telling. Um, <laughs> better fall back in line. It's, that's what happens when um, black cops fall out of line. Um, and um, at his retirement party, or nonetheless, like, I mean, they waited for this man to have his retirement party to get, you know, they never forget. Um, the black teens who tortured the white, mentally challenged um, white kids, um, they're not going to get any mercy by the court, unfortunately. Um, it's it's going to be pretty much a wrap for them. Um, whatever the maximum is, they're going to get it. And unfortunately, the only problem I really have with the whole tape is that they videotaped it. I mean, you got to be more codified. Um, you know, everything is not meant to go on World Star or um, 
Facebook or whatever, I mean, it has to be, if you're going to do something, I mean, any crime black people, do not put your camera out and take a picture or have your friend picture in it. It's just not a smart idea. Um, Dylan Roof, man, I have no problem with the death penalty, but it just seems like, see, I'm an advocate for torture, and um, I just feel like he's a, a prime candidate. You know, you kill nine people, you only could die once, you know. Um, but I, 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 I appreciate his, um, him sticking to his code. And, um, I mean, he's a dedicated, full-fledged white supremacist. He's sticking to his code to the end. And um, he didn't want to hear about, he don't care about how the niggas feel. I have no mercy. You know, he's pretty much telling the judge, listen, I ain't crazy. I know exactly what I did, right? I went in there, I killed some niggas. They deserved it. We had a race war. You don't see it. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I know what's going on, and I'm the first one to go. And I, that's his mentality, and um, I'm glad that he's sticking with it. Um, I'm still not convinced that he's going to get the death penalty, um, but it, it could happen. Um, if I had time, I just wanted to say... Um, Right now, it's the, I always hear black people talk about boycotting. And I just think this is, just looking at the news, perfect time to boycott. Um, when you look at all these um, white businesses, corporations, who make so much money off of black people, number one consumers, um, and they don't put more money back into our neighborhoods. So they're going out of business now. It looks like um, losing a lot of stores, um, Macy's, Sears, Kmart. Um, Coles, um, a lot of brands, Aeropostale, another one, a lot of them are going out of business now. And I think this is the perfect time for us to boycott them. I mean, this would be like the dagger. I mean, they, they can't survive without the black box. So um, that's all I wanted to say, and thank you for my, my um, time. And I also look forward to reading your piece. Can yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. I was just trying to get in real quick. Go ahead. I, I'm straight. I just wanted to get in my gratitude. I'm I'm all good. Okay. Uh, greetings, folks. Um, for the piece about the uh, inventors and um, the inventions, it had me reconsider just how much of an economical loss we've been just taking over and over and over again. Gus has mentioned it a few other times, but it just reminded me again, so many, you know, in the piece, it was expressed that we could invent things, but we could make uh, no money from it. And even the interviewer was like, oh, well, naturally. And I mean, it's just disgusting how much they have um, taken from us by just, and I don't even have the words to, eloquently articulate just how much was taken from us and made us be where we are today so that they could be where they are today and how okay they are with it. Uh, but that's one of the things I thought about for that. Regarding the story with uh, Emmett Till, uh, my first question was, did that, I'm assuming it's a white woman, I could be totally incorrect, but um, did she even read the book? Based off of her questions, they were so superficial, so like level surface, I did not feel like she read the book at all. 
And then um, I don't think that black people demanded for, like the quote was black people weren't demanding for change. Um, and I don't think that that's, they were afraid of change and that they wanted things to stay the same. I think that after viewing so many black people who had attempted to change or make change, the uh, terroristic white backlash um, pretty much terrified them and traumatized them. And so they really just wanted to keep away the negativity of trying to better anything. And if they could exist in a certain way that they kind of would. Um, she mentioned one of the family members being loved by whites. And I think she knew the answer to her question. She was like, well, is it because they liked him or loved him as a real person or because he just was a uh, complacent person. I think she knows the answer. I do not appreciate nor, and I just like to point it out anytime because it was, it changes the way the narrative is said is when we call it a great migration, it's not a great migration. It's a fleeing of black people from terrorism. And so I think it needs to be spoken um, like that in the same way that we view uh, people from various African countries on the continent fleeing Africa for whatever reason um, over to other countries. We didn't really have another country to go to, so we fled the south to the north, and we should be viewed as refugees and victims of racism, white supremacy, and not just folks who had a bad lot in the south and were looking for better jobs, as the narrative is always um, expressed. Ethnic harassment, I just wanted to mention that that was something one of the clips said. Uh, there we go with the invention of new terms instead of just calling it racism, white supremacy, or white terrorism. Um, the child who was slammed by the police in school, I, it would be wonderful. Like, this is how I know we're not, and when I say we, I just mean everybody. Like, you know, not necessarily considering what racism, white supremacy is doing to our mental health. No, like she couldn't even really talk about it without getting ready to cry. And like, she didn't even know what to do because she was in shock. So I, I doubt that she's receiving any type of like mental health is even being addressed there, but that's enough to cause PTSD. Like any, next time someone touches her, she could be jumping, like everything could be different from her. It's not as simple as, oh, it happened and it's over. And we, it's unfortunate so many of us just walk around, myself included, um, constantly in a state of fear. Um, in the clip about Bagatelle, I would like to know if anyone knows what DO stands for. I do. I understand do DNA, but I didn't understand what DO was. And um, for the clip on the sexual abuse, uh, one thing that's like it bothers me so much, I was looking online, I could not find it a single person's name. The only name I found led me to an Af a highly melanated uh, black African male. I could not find any names of anybody else. In the state, this is, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. In the states, you anything you do will be put on the internet with your name. You could get stopped for a ticket and it's on the internet with your name. Why can we not find any of the names of these people who went over to CAR and sexually abused children? It's atrocious. I mean, I'm not the best researcher, but I can kind of be kind of quick with it. And it really shouldn't be that I have to scour the internet for that kind of information. Names and pictures, if not convictions. Um, I think I might have hit my five. I have. I've been, I'm trying to be like, chronic and concise here. So if there's time later, I'll come back. 
Thank you. Uh, any folks that we have not heard from at all? Anyone that we have uh, missed? If you have a hand up and you had commentary to share, please do not wait till the end of the broadcast. Go ahead and share your thoughts now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to Gus. Good evening to all of the listeners. This is V from Central New York. Man, Gus, uh, this show always recalibrates my thinking on the week. Just when I think I have an appropriate or an approximate understanding of the world and what's happening, I listen to this program and my mind turns again. So very quickly, if I can just contribute one thought about Chicago and the game. Uh, Of the various books that I've been looking through over the past couple of years, I have been stunned to find at least one dozen um, studies from the 60s and the 70s, along with maybe two or three books that deals exclusively with black gang cultural structure, um, uh, development, cultivation, and expansion in various cities. But it seems the most notorious city which was studied was Chicago. I do not believe uh, that is coincidence. Uh, Secondly, as far as Chicago is concerned, I do not believe it's coincidence that for the past several years, we have been treated to a program called Chicago Blue, if I'm getting that program's name correct, uh, which heroizes, or um, that might be the wrong word, but it deifies the Chicago police officer. There you go. And Fox News, which I do not frequently watch, uh, but it's on when I'm at work, has been preparing the ground. Oh, that is a metaphor. They have been speaking robustly of the idea that a President Trump may indeed federalize the Chicago Police Department or possibly send the military into Chicago to, at first, they spoke of remove the immigrants, which uh, there is an interesting paper on the black man being seen as an internal immigrant within the United States, which I found several months ago. And secondly, to deal with the violence, which is prevalent in Chicago. Uh, They have been talking about this now for three months, even before Mr. Trump was uh, selected. Finally, um, on my end, uh, I read in the U.S., excuse me, in the Wall Street Journal, this is sort of old, from November 30th. On page two of the first section, headline, 
White Deaths Exceed Births. Very interesting article if you can find it at your local library. And same section, um, page A7, U.S.-China will remain intertwined. The column is about the history of the Chinese in the United States. However, the picture that is shown are of undeniably non-white, black-skinned people from China in the United States. I thought this was very interesting and very telling. And then to conclude, uh, I have had several racist encounters over the past month. I've been called nigger three times in public, once at a local establishment and twice out on the streets. I have had two mental, supposedly mentally challenged white persons who have shown open hostility towards me over the past month. And a self-described, another one, mixed friend from a Caribbean country has confided in me that he may be returning shortly because of the racism in this country, uh, whereas his skin is valued in this Caribbean country because he is half white, half black, up where we are at. Uh, he's just another nigga. Thank you very much, Gus. I am enthusiastically awaiting that piece that you are to have published uh, shortly. Have a good evening, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I posted that Washington, uh, excuse me, Wall Street Journal uh, report uh, from the end of November. I posted that on my Facebook page just now. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have not spoken, you have commentary to share, you had your hand up, please don't, don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead, speak now. May I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I, I did hear that term uh, ghetto was used in the audio segment. And like, I don't, I don't want to get into the area of saying this uh, metaphor, but in terms of a definition, I think Mr. Fuller also mentioned about it being like a mentality um, as, as far as defining ghetto and uh, also in the segment where they, I guess one of the code words for a section, I guess an unfavorable, poor quality section of the establishment where I, I guess black people were led to go and uh, frequent was called the, um, the the ghetto portion of the restaurant. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and uh, I wanted to uh, also mention, I seen it was an interview with the Richard Spencer guy. Um, that's, uh, I guess, linked to the alt-right. And I noticed that people, they still continue to call him, call him a, I guess, a white nationalist. But I seen him on these interviews, you know, respectedly, he's going to deny that title or that label. And I bring him up to say that it was a question 
uh, two questions that was asked of him. Uh, the first one was, are you a white supremacist? And uh, he says, oh, no, of course not. You know, white supremacy, that was something of the past where, you know, we're not really dominating and conquering people anymore. So that's the thing of the past. Basically, he said something like that. And the female, she asked a follow-up question. Um, well, do you believe that the United States and the United States white culture should be supreme? So she used both of them terms in a different way, and he seemed to answer the question um, more in a more of a uh, in a yes way. So he says, "Well, you know, my my ancestors they helped discover this country and." basically just doing a lot of bragging and he ended up saying yes at the end of that second question. Then I think that term double speak has been used. He, at the end of that interview, he says, well, you know, who needs a country where it's about this multiculturalism? You know, we need somewhere where we've had conquerors, but we had people that was dominant. But see, he just, at the beginning of the interview, he said, I'm not a white supremacist. We don't dominate people anymore. So I thought that was very slick of him. Um, I can't remember which interview it was. I think it was a CNN interview. Uh, another thing I wanted to touch on was uh, the black female. I guess she was going to a car. And I think something was written on there with mustard or something. And a naked woman was drawn on the car. And it was interesting that they was using a bunch of food products. Like, I don't, I don't know if it could be a, um, I guess, a, a potential Wilson moment in that as well. But um, that was interesting as well. And the, I think the guy's name is uh, Mumia, when he was talking about the hepatitis, and they were conducting, I think he said, unconstitutional medical practices, where they found a cure to what people had ailments for. And, like, the one guy, he said, they they gave him a pill and he died the next day. I mean, it just goes to show you that the the amount of power that um, white supremacists unfortunately have over the world's uh, non-white people is just uh, very critical. Um, and uh, that's something I had I had no idea of. And it should be something everybody in a in a system of justice should have general basic knowledge of about their bodies and the things that could be. Uh, of a potential harm to them, but the racists withhold, uh, as Mr. Fuller say, constructive information. And uh, speak, and speaking of people stealing things, I think there's been a report of um, David Duke uh, distorting Mr. Fuller's quote. Uh, have you heard about that, Gus? How's it distorted? Like, it was something about if if you don't like if you don't understand. Jewish su- supremacy, what it is and how it works. Everything else you understand will only confuse you. Mm. Uh, it. I, I first started hearing that, um, I'm going to say 2010, I might be off by a year or so, but it was within the five years ago range. Uh, one of our guests, previous uh, guests on the program, uh, Kush the Black Unifier. He's been a guest on multiple times. I think I heard uh, he and even some other victims of racism uh, use that phrase. I've heard it before, and uh, I've heard Mr. Fuller, uh, at least the codification that I've heard from him or his response, where um, he's, man, I've heard him talk 
both uh, publicly on people's radio programs and uh, just in phone conversations that I've had with him where he said he's heard that where people, you know, have started doing the same thing, taking his phrase and changing it. Add a word here, add a word there, put the Jewish thing or what have you. And he said, that's fine as long as it does not get attributed to him so that people are not going out and saying that, oh, yeah, Mr. Fuller said, if you don't understand Jewish supremacy, what it is and how it works, then that should not be happening at all. If you want to take something he wrote and change it and call it yours, fine. But just make sure that you, as he says, stand by your work so people know you are the one, let's say, uh, John, John is the one that's saying that if you don't understand Jewish supremacy, everything else will confuse you. And then Mr. Fuller says, if you don't understand racism, everything else will confuse you. That's what I've heard him, his response to all that. Yes, sir. That makes perfect sense. Uh, thanks for the, the clarity and I'll pretty much end right there. Thank you. For sure. <laughs> Uh, other folks that we have missed, anybody that has not been able to share at all, we have about 15 minutes uh, or so remaining. Uh, you should don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead and share now. Oh, did we get everybody? <laughs> we uh, did we? Nobody got missed. Nobody has a hand up that has uh, been omitted, left out, don't want to get any raging emails, people saying that they had a hand up and that they were uh, ignored, that I didn't get their mute button. So we got everybody. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I did check Dylan Stormroof was convicted uh, of a hate crime for whatever it's worth, uh, whatever it's worth. I mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, of the program uh, and if people are looking if anyone has spare time and energy I did m- mention the films I've not seen the full list so if anyone is able to locate the list in its entirety in terms of these films that Mr. Roof mentioned I would like to see it not that I want to sit and watch all of these films uh, and take notes although that may be of some constructive value I would just be curious to see what all uh, films, what were all of the films that he listed? Uh, they felt it was, you know, noteworthy enough to bring it up at all that he had this list and to even go through and mention some of the films that were on it. Let's get the whole list uh, since we're this. That's what this whole process is supposed to be about discovery. Let's get all the evidence so that we can understand this tragedy. If anyone can find the whole list, please share. Uh, folks have uh, other. Oh, I guess just I didn't get to play. It was. Man, it was a lot of stuff that happened uh, this week. There were a lot of segments that I did not get to play. Uh, Bobby Bowden, he's a retired uh, football coach at Florida State University, where he came out and said that he was talking, reminiscing about his days coaching Negros down in Tallahassee. And he said that uh, all of the the black male uh, football players that he has down in retired fire, I'm sure he knows all about Bobby Bowden. He said, yeah, we we used to go and recruit all these black males, and uh, of course, they don't have daddies, you know, niggers. So, they all just imitate their mom. Mom is the mom, and she's the dad. So, they all want to be like the man, which is their mom, and so that's why they all got earrings and are trying to be like their mom. This was on uh, an ESPN program this week, uh, where he did all of this, and then afterwards, I'm like, wow, that sounds kind of racist. Uh, And I even, even if you want to go the other route, because I have heard Mr. Fuller talk about the emasculation of black males, if that is happening, why is that happening? Isn't that part of the plan of racism, white supremacy, long running, uh, connecting that all the way back with lynching? See, when whites, when they come out and they'll give you 
a little bit. They'll pick out some of the things that do happen in the system of white supremacy, but they make sure to take no blame so that it's always something defective about Negroes. See how retarded and ignorant and stupid you all are. You can't even raise your, your children correctly to be men. They're just going around copying. When, what would they do if they didn't have good old Bobby Bowden to take care of them down here in Florida? We do what we can down here on the Tallahassee plantation. Uh, that was one. I think there was another one. Basketball uh, GM for the Atlanta Hawks uh, was saying that he knows how to deal with conflict because he's married to a black female and there's always rowdiness uh, at his house. You can insert the cowbell. It, lots of stuff uh, went down first week of uh, 2017. Other folks have things that they want to make sure they got in. Even if you already shared anything quick, you want to get in before we conclude the broadcast. Can I bear it? Yes, sir. The, one of the movies that uh, was referenced to Dylan Roof was The Great Gatsby. And uh, from my understanding, uh, Lopper Stoddard's book, The Rising Tide of Color, was, uh, was referenced in that movie. So that was pretty interesting. And one more thing uh, I forgot to add to uh, which the Chicago police, they have sensitivity training. And what they do is they take the police to a Holocaust museum in Skokie, which is on the uh, northern suburb, but they don't take them to the DeSabo Museum, which is an African-American museum. So uh, that was, that's pretty, pretty interesting where majority of the uh, people that they lock up are non-white black people. So just wanted to add that. Dr. Welsing's uh, sister, Lauren Cresslove, she mentioned the uh, DeSabo Museum uh, in Chicago and the significance uh, of that establishment. Check it out if you are in the area. Uh, other folks that uh, are on the yeah. line? Yes, sir. Oh, oh, oh sorry for um, interjecting, guys. Uh, yes, I just wanted to touch on a very funny workplace incident that took place on Friday. Um, as I was leaving work, um, I was talking to a couple of the security guards, they were uh, black and non-white. And we've talked before about all kinds of things, racism, white supremacy, all kinds of stuff. So we sitting there having a conversation. And um, the one of the security guards uh, sent me a free copy of uh, Birth of a Nation because I don't uh, go to the movies. Um, that's something I, that's one of my, part of my code. I'm not spending money on white supremacist uh, uh Enter containment. So anyway, he, we were talking about that, and he was going to put the, the video on a disc for me, but I didn't have any space on any of the discs. So he ended up uh, sending it to me in Google Drive. So we were having a discussion about the movie because I said I really did want to see it. I just wasn't going to the movies to see it. So as the discussion came up, um, I ended up we ended up discussing the documentary that I talked about before um, on by Matt Turner and whatnot. We were getting into a discussion about that. And then the one of the security guards said, you know, a lot of people don't, a lot of black people don't know what happened to Nat Turner. And I started, I said, well, if you want to really get detail, I told him about the the uh, delectable Negro, and I went into discussing some of the details of what happened to him. And, and the uh, the one of the actual security guard I was talking to, the other ones were just listening to our discussion. Um, he chimed in as well, and we discussed the fact that um, the slaves refused to take castor oil for like two years after the incident because castor oil was one of the things that they did with his body was use it as castor oil and force the slaves to eat, you know, to t partake of it as a form of uh, of uh, cannibalism forced upon the slaves so they would not use it in the uh, Virginia area for about two years after the incident, if I remember correctly from the book. So 
find out as we're having this discussion, um, this white guy is there. And I didn't see him at first. He wasn't there at first. So we're talking, and I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, I said, they skinned him. They boiled his skin. They made all kinds of, um, you know, wallets out of him and stuff. And I said, and then I said, um, I talked about the white guy who brought his skull to the museum, um, saying that they were the African-American Museum in D.C., um, History Museum, um, and said that his family passed it down as a family heirloom, and he wanted to return it to the family. So I went into that whole discussion. And I said, yeah, so that's what they do. You know, they'll cut your testes off, cut your penis off, put it in a formaldehyde jar, and pass it down. So one of the other security guards starts laughing, and he starts pointing at the white guy. So when everybody turns, and, look, and it's like one, two, three, about four or five, including me, and then the white guy. And um, everybody turns to look at the white guy, and he is as red as a beet, just, just severely embarrassed. And everybody just fell out laughing because it was like he was exposed. It was like he didn't know what to do. And um, I'm sitting there looking at him, and I said, I said, yeah, I said, hey, I said, it's historical fact is what it is, you know. And they just, like, I mean, they had the laugh of a century. And he started laughing, too, but it was more or less, in my in my opinion, his laughter was more to dissipate the embarrassment for this information about what was done to black people be specifically in that turn of being exposed and him happening to happening to walk upon this conversation. Never saw the guy before. Don't really care. But it was just interesting to see his reaction in that moment. Um, and just the look on his face was priceless. That's, that's all I have to say, but it was something I wanted to discuss. Thank you. Um, and I'll meet my line. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. Oh, wait, guess if you were you about to respond? I'm sorry, I'll wait. I was just going to let folks know time is uh, winding down that you should speak up now if you have commentary. The last thing I wanted to comment on, um, I wanted to, I believe it was Mr. Steele. I do think that um, Chicago is about to enter a very um, difficult time. But I also don't think I think that's true for all of all of us. Um, they may be used as maybe like an experimentation place, um, but I think that the, all of it is about to get bad for non-white people, specifically Black people. Um, and I've been trying my trying to do my due diligence by making sure that I keep the conversation with the people that I care about most very focused on racism, white supremacy, and making sure that, you know, in between moments of their television watching, I abhor television, I don't have the attention span for it. Um, but I make sure to, you know, say, hey, you know, as a family, these are things we need to consider that we need to talk about, that we need to make sure that we keep our eyes on. Um, and uh, I'm female. And um, some of the things that I've just been doing, like I wasn't kidding, I did get my tactical pin. They have tactical pin videos. Um, I do believe in the becoming familiar with a firearm, even if you don't own one. Um, I think going ahead and tackling that fear that I feel like some people have. I don't have it. I'm out in Virginia, but some people might. Um, so, you know, going and, you know, touching a real one, seeing what it's like. You never, I mean, in many, you know, life isn't like a movie, but it's quite possible someone could approach you with it. It might drop. You have no, you know, you would just want to be familiar. Um, these things are sold at Walmart, even, you know, BB guns. And I, in some time that I've spent on YouTube, I mean, white children are very comfortable with firearms. Um, very comfortable. Like, 
like scary comfortable. And um, I just think that, I mean, even like using a knife, like having mace on you, just being very prepared because when I'm paying, you know, reading through history and things like that, it, sometimes whites are not giving the non-whites any warning. It just happens. And you could be on a trolley and a bus and get snatched up and shot on the road um, just because a rumor got spread or something got started. So I don't take that lightly at all. And I think that, yes, what what is happening in Chicago with the passive resistance, they, you know, the police are pretty much saying, if we can't kill without impunity, we don't really want to be police. So we'll just do the bare minimum. But even with the other things that are going on, I don't think that that is far from possible for areas that are concentrated with uh, Black people. And so I just wanted to say on the call to, you know, and perhaps other females who are listening but I haven't heard from or, you know, who might listen to the archive to go ahead and prepare it for it. Uh, there was like a quote that I read somewhere like, and I'm going to totally mess up the quote, but it's like, at first they came for such and such. I didn't say nothing. Then they went for such and such. I didn't say nothing. They went for such and such. I didn't say nothing. Then they came for me and there was no one to stand for me. So we could be like, oh, yeah, Chicago, New York. Atlanta or something like that, but it could very well be Virginia, California, you know, all these other places that people may not think. So being very serious about making sure that we keep logical, action-based responses, at least to give ourselves a fair shot at fighting and just being, when you're prepared, you just feel better, more secure in yourself. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. There's that word fair again. Uh, did anybody have uh final comment they wanted to get in before we uh, get ready to wrap things up? I, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, if anybody has noticed, um, these race soldiers are operating uh, throughout the Internet and have been doing so uh, for quite some time. And I'm learning... Um, more and more as I uh, find out about people who have the skills to um, manage big data, about how embedded these people are in the systems that we are using every day to communicate. And I think that there ought to be a mind amongst uh, victims of racism uh, to form compensatory apparatuses uh, under which that we can um, communicate, network in much the same the same manner as they do. I think that there needs to be a concerted effort to make a, a so-called black uh, Reddit, for instance, just a place where we can network um, that's heavily moderated, uh, so that the influence of uh, suspected racists are minimized because they will be there but are minimized and i think that there should be a concerted effort to create apparatuses uh with which we can um network and uh stage uh counter offenses uh, that are taking place on the internet um, and that's just my final thought i'll mute my line thank you can i speak to that previous caller briefly got 40 seconds. Okay. 
Um, uh, there is a, a community started by Scotty Reed called the BTR community. It's a closed community. It's uh, $24 per year, $2 per month, um, where black people get together and discuss all kinds of is- issues as it pertains to black people. Um, and, and it's a closed environment, no data mining. There's no trolls, no uh, alphabet boys on there. So it's something I wanted to throw out there. It's um, btrcommunity.com. And uh, lastly, rest in peace to, to uh, Tillicum, the orca who practiced counter-racist violence and killed one of his white trainers. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Yes, rest in peace to Tillicum. And can you get that link to Gus so that I could like this hard to hear over the phone? Sure, that's no problem. I'll, I'll email it to him. What's the uh, link again? It's on um, BTR community. It's the um the it's like a Facebook for Black people, and all we discuss on there all the time is is uh, things pertaining to racism, white supremacy, or anything as it pertains to Black people that is positive. Um, and I've been on it practically since it started. And um, right now we have about I think 125 people on there. Scotty's on there all the time. Quite a bit of the um, radio hosts from B- from Black Talk Radio are on there, and a whole bunch of uh, callers and listeners and other people. And we communicate about all kinds of things, post events that that are, are in local areas across the country where Black people live, and all kinds of stuff. So, so it's a really really positive environment, and no white people. Um, and it's closed, so there is no data mining. No one's tr- uh, tracking your your clicks. No one's sending your information, selling your your you know your, your information to anyone else. It's just us being able to talk amongst ourselves in a closed community, and you just pay that. I'm gonna hop in right there. We just we got the address, <laughs> folks. Could go check it out, and oh, we did our three. No apologies needed. All good, uh, or it's not all good, but at least that is grand. Thank you for the information, Goshir, Mr. Reed, and uh, everyone at the Black Talk Radio Network would uh, appreciate the support. Uh, we will be here uh, later in the week. I'm actually trying to see if we can get Pam back on because we were supposed to do a program last month and she had tough stuff going on. So we're going to reschedule, see if we can make it happen uh, coming up for January. If you get confused, have issues, drop us an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail. I hope the broadcast was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, sharing. Uh, Stay codified. I know it's the weekend. Heard it directly from the caller this evening. Black father, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Let's make sure we're in the correct mind state. If we should have to deal with a Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, Darren Wilson, any other race soldier, badge or no, they are super, super dangerous and i don't think us being intoxicated is going to help us neutralize the threat of racist man racist woman racist child uh with that thanks everyone for tuning in creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.